0: coast to coast with art bell did you ever yeah. listen to that uh, occasionally okay all yeah. right i i i used to work at ups like the midnight shift right. at ups yeah and so i was there until like you know 2 3 in the morning and the drive home from the hub i was at was about 25 30 minutes and so i listened to this on the way home and just at how bonkers everybody was but then i think i was thinking that how like what's what's today's equivalent like alex alex jones well, or see, that stuff used to be so quaint and so weird and so f- kind of funny. Right. And now this shit is just so
1: serious. Well, and Alex Jones, you know, when I was in college, Jones was just a local access Austinite, right? I mean, right. like, he would show up in Linkletter films, but 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 only, like, in the rotoscoped ones, right? I mean, it was he'd show up, I think, he, in The Waking Life. He had a bit where he was right. in. And he was just a guy. Like, it wasn't, like, it wasn't this media conglomerate that, you know, it was just a guy ranting into, uh, you know, a microphone and it was and everyone Saw it as an art bell type of thing. Yeah, it was it was fun to listen to and it was fun to make fun of and kind of and to Imagine what have you I, I don't know what I guess you'd have to find some sort of YouTube rabbit hole at this point or I don't think it goes out over the airwaves anymore. There's too too much money involved so Unfortunately,
0: <laughs> it's just well. There's so I think there's probably so many conspiracy theorist paranormal podcasts to choose from that also probably talk about films. But <laughs> right. <laughs> but I mean, like, right. there's just so Wait, much.
1: Mean, just, we're not the only film podcast. The only
0: like film podcast that somehow discusses art Bell. <laughs> but I feel like, there's so much like weird content out there to choose from. That, that yeah. Now all, that everyone and has now it's, a like, it's just right. got it's, so it's like so weird and so. But I feel like everyone takes it so seriously now, too. I mean, I used to like when I would drive home listening to Art Bell. I would I would laugh and be like, "You fucking idiots!" Right? I mean, and, and sorry for any like coast to coast like <laughs> any Art acolytes Bell, out right? there. Art Bells, right? yeah. he's not Osprey. really he's not really dead, right? right he's right. he's <laughs> very L. Ron Hubbard esque. He's just <laughs> gone to a higher plane.
1: <laughs> he's he's ascended in some way. It, 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 yeah, it, we have gone and I guess maybe this is the evolution of all of these things, right? Um, And not that I've studied this at all, but like at some point where you just can't, you've, Pandora's box has been opened and you can't reel it back in. And inevitably, as it spreads farther and farther, the crazier and crazier things are going to get. Where now you're not just on a message board, going back and forth with someone who's pretending to be from, you know, 20 to 40 and bringing you back information about your time or what have you. Now it's we've gone to extremes to and and I don't know if it's a monetization thing. I don't I don't have any idea how QAnon works, to be quite honest. I don't know if there's I, I mean, I know I'm, Alex I'm, Jones. I'm glad that you don't have all the inside information. I, I feel a lot better about doing right. this podcast with you now that I mean, Alex Jones is now a snake oil salesman. Right. I mean, all of you know, in addition to peddling. Outlandish Illuminati theories. He's also then hawking. It's it's you know, and it's so duplicitous and ridiculous, right? Where you can, like, if he was just screaming to the clouds against Illuminati and like not accepting, and and still just a guy in a. You know, on a pirate radio station, that'd be one thing. But now when you've got millions upon millions of dollars coming in because you're selling these, you know, multivitamins that you're, you know, and, 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 you know that are useless to idiotic masses. Just useless. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you clearly know that's what you're doing right I mean so there's no honesty in the in the fact that you're you don't truly you don't truly believe and I guess maybe that's a good thing i don't know but but it's but it's just like anything else right it's just like a, a you know an evangelistic you know tent revivalist right where you you're you've got people who aren't really sick and and you're and you're curing them, and so to this point it's just all about the money what, whatever we can bring in however we can fuck people over and speaking of evangelistic like snake oil salesmen
0: Jimmy Swaggart has a has an uncanny resemblance to my Uncle Danny. <laughs> and when I was a kid, when I was, you know, eight, seven, you know, Sunday morning, Jimmy Swaggart was on, and I was like, Mom, why is Uncle Danny on TV?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so today we're talking... Paul Schrader. Today early is, Paul Schrader. is the Schrader series Early, the early years. And why
1: does the Wilhelm scream? Tackling Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader.
0: And that includes Blue Collar,
1: Hardcore, and American Gigolo. Yeah, his first three directed films. He would have, what, like five scripts out at this point? Like Rolling Thunder, Yakuza, Taxi Driver. An early draft of um, the Spielberg
0: Close Encounters. Was that, wait, what year was that? Oh, that would have been seventy-seven. Yeah, so he so, did an early draft of
1: of Close Encounters. Um, so around that time frame, and this and did he get credit for Rolling Thunder? Yes. Okay. At, at least he talks about it like he does. Okay. I mean, I, in the interviews that I, they all mention. It, I mean, so. everyone knows
0: that he did. I just couldn't remember if he actually got like the credit
1: for that. It's yeah, scary. I'm not sure. Yeah. And this is a, this is a guy. For for those of you who don't know, um, and obviously Schrader is most well known for his collaborations with Scorsese. He he most famously did the script for Taxi Driver. Um, he's he's done a ton of Scorsese scripts: Raging Bull, uh, Raging Bull, Last Temptation, uh, Bringing Out the Dead. So he's mm-hmm. uh, he's done work with Martin Scorsese a lot, uh, as well as. Directed his own things, written things with his brother. This was a guy who grew up in a Calvinist home, uh, wasn't allowed to see movies until he got out on his own after high school. And his
0: first movie was? Did you catch that? Absent-minded professor. Yes. Yeah. 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 He was.
1: Was the quote? He was left unimpressed. So, <laughs> I think is the is the the exact quote there. And so it, he's a he's an interesting cat. This is a guy who's like clearly was destined to be an artist. Uh, he spent some time being a movie critic. He got tied up with Pauline Kael. Um, uh, He was just kind of bouncing around a lot in his life and ended up writing the script for Taxi Driver. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the rest is somewhat history.
0: Yeah, he was was in New York with a friend and the friend's father... Was was a was a film critic, and so that's how he ended up at this uh, at this event with Pauline Kael, and that's how he met her. And you know, he was talking about <clears throat> all these movies, and 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 I guess she was being he called he said nice when he when <laughs> when she sort of admonished his opinions, and and when he you know. St- Stood up for Bergman. She was like, "Oh, you're so quaint." <laughs> but then I guess he got the story he tells is that he drank too much, stayed there, and in the morning she made him like breakfast and said, "You don't want to be a preacher or a pastor. You know, you want to be a film critic. So you know, finish up school." And then she helped get him into UCLA film school. Right, and I think she and ended up getting him up. a gig in, in Seattle and, and tried to. Oh, she tried. So to. She this is where. Well, this is where he became a screenwriter. So he he had been working for the Los Angeles Free Press, I think. And and she was really good at getting her Paulette's jobs. And she was sort of a you know king, not a kingmaker, but you know, she would right, get people right. in these positions, and it looked good on her. And, and, and editors would come to her and say, hey, we need somebody. And, and, and so she said to him, you know, there's a gig in Seattle. You should take it. It's an artsy town. You belong there. And he said, well... I've kind of got this idea for a screenplay. I think I want to stick in L.A. and try and, and try to do this. And she said, I need an answer right now. And he's like, well, then my answer's no. And she was like, you're dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> and he went back to L.A. and, and started the screenwriting. It they have worked out for like, the best. I think so. I think so. Although he, I haven't read... Well, any of his criticism. I I've read either. bits and pieces of his book, *The Transcendental Style in Film*, looking at Ozu and Bresson and um, Dreyer. I think so. I've read. Pieces of that, but but that's it. And he and Paul and, and have
1: you read her review of Hardcore? I have not. She did not like Hardcore at all. I can't. I mean, well, Hardcore <laughs> wasn't well received. We'll get to that. No, yeah, uh, but, yeah, but Hardcore wasn't well received when it came out. No, no, <laughs> but, it, it made money, but it did, it wasn't well received. Right. But I, I I find
0: it interesting how quickly she sort of just jettisoned people that didn't agree with her or do what she was t- i'm i'm spoiler not a huge pauline kale fan um <laughs> if you couldn't tell by right just sure. sort of the things that i was saying so she was like well i think you're a good screenwriter but you suck as a filmmaker eventually she came around she saw his film the comfort of strangers okay Sorry. yeah she saw that and she goes I- Okay, I think you've be- you've
1: become a good a good director now. <laughs> right, you finally crossed that uh, barrier.
0: But but just that sort of I guess she would badmouth him at studio parties?
1: It, it just, all seems so like New York seventies, just that whole like artiste uh, environment where, you know, everyone's trying to one up one another. And, and, but I think, and I think that's existed throughout ages, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I, mean,
0: I mean, I mean, the Algonquin these, like, round like circles, table right. was very much that, <laughs> but you know, just like Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley, just throwing jabs back and forth at <laughs> each other as they're right. just continuing getting drunker and drunker. But I think it
1: also has an air of like,
0: I don't know. I mean,
1: Intellectualism. In, well, I, in I definitely this. think Pauline Kale had a, a, an elevated sense of self of what she was actually doing. Right. Whereas like, you know, I grew up with and again, I'm not comparing the two, but like Ebert. And Siskel always seemed to have like a common everyman sensibility sure. to their. They definitely looked at movies as art, and then and they and I didn't always agree with their obviously their 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 rankings. But Ebert was very much of the sense of I'm not going to tell you what to like. I'm going to tell you what you know why what I, I like, like. this movie, yeah. uh, but I'm never going to tell you what to like. So I because I, I'm not you. I don't know what you're gonna what you're gonna like, what you're not gonna like. Pauline kale was not like that at all she was like this film yes this film no but yeah i, I, I think she i liked i like reading her stuff uh, As for <laughs> you can say it out loud no, I, I i i don't i don't care for her i
0: don't i don't care for her style i don't care i also never i never understood i think her her taste or her sensibility so how i i i, I didn't understand how you could like a film like la ventura and then not like la note Right, I, I, I
1: well, didn't. Well, calling get that. Bergman quaint and things like like right, okay, yeah,
0: and like you like masculine, feminine, but then like you would admonish artsy films in other places, and so I could never quite get a grasp on right. on that, and that just
1: pisses me off. So blue collar, <laughs> let's dig into it. So, oh, you have one can more thought? Yeah, yeah, well, please, go ahead.
0: kind of an overall thought. Yeah, and then we can we can jump into blue collar, but something that that that. Something that I find really kind of fascinating about all three of these films is that they are so much more interested, and, and by films and being interested, I mean the film, the filmmakers, the characters, the everyone involved, so much more interested in the illusion than they are the truth. So like in Blue Collar, these guys, this illusion of the American dream, of I can work hard and pay my bills, which and that the union will help me and take care of me. Hardcore, right, the illusion that I am a good father, I am a good church member. I, I, you know, My daughter didn't run off to go do porn, that's not true. American Gigolo, the illusion of, I'm climbing up in society by doing this. I can somehow be part of this world or be accepted in part of this world. I have agency, it's, it's all spectacle. They are just so much more invested in Living out that spectacle or living out that illusion than they are and actually seeing what's really going on around them or having this kind of uh, original relationship with the
1: universe around them. I, I mean, I think that drives from an 18-year-old kid losing his Calvinist faith, right? Sure. And realizing and 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 so going into hardcore and like I wasn't a huge. I mean, I'm not a huge. It's not a good way to say that, but I, <laughs> no, I wasn't I was a huge, huge hardcore Calvinist. fan. Like I wasn't. A, no, I wasn't a huge Calvinist. I didn't. I wasn't like really kind of in <laughs> tune with those dudes, right? <laughs> But listening to the tenants and kind of reading up just a little bit on and on just very surface level of the Calvinistic tenants. and it's and it's outlined in hardcore as well. But like coming from, that perspective and thinking that you're going into the 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 ministry and then having your kind of worldview turned on its head all three of these films speak to a young person who and who clearly has artistic tendencies has a voice who's struggling with losing his faith And, and whatever sense that may be and again like you said in blue collar it's faith it's losing their faith in the american dream even, even if it wasn't ever there in uh, you know, our hardcore is, is actually losing his faith and then, or at least losing his faith in the, in the, in the edifice of his, you know, the, the artifice of yeah. his, of his family. Right. And then in American gender load, this idea of like, I'm a lower class citizen. I can actually live in this and be respected by these elites that I'm pleasuring
0: in servicing.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good term. Um, Good job of this. I'm going to try to do better. So if you mind, I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the, um, this, the, the synopsis of blue collar and I'll give you the other two. So blue collar, uh, his first film, is about three uh, Detroit auto autoworkers. Uh, they're all basically just day to day union guys that work in, a th- work in a plant and they're all put upon in different ways. There's two black guys, one white guy Harvey Keitel, Richard Pryor, and Yafet Koto. Uh, Yathek Koto is an ex con. Richard Pryor is a family man, as well as Harvey Keitel is another family man. Um, they work hard. They try to play hard, but they have the typical trappings of a 1970s family life where they're probably the only caretakers for their families. They have too many kids, uh, and not enough money. They eventually get the idea that they're, they're getting screwed over from both ends. They're getting screwed over by, by, by the, by the plant. They're getting screwed over by their union. So they decide one night that they're going to, they're going to, rob their union headquarters uh it all goes south they try to rob it It, when they they actually do end up making the robbery but the robbery does not as prolific as they think it's going to be they only can take home 600 dollars. they owe more money to the guy who set them up on the robbery than they actually took in they come across a book that the union heads are are keeping that has outlined some illicit loans that they've been making Uh, the group has been approached by the fbi earlier in the film and so, uh, Richard Pryor gets the idea that they're going to blackmail the union, and then from there, really everything turns south. Um, and one of them is ended up one one of them ends up getting murdered in a quote unquote accident. And Richard Pryor and Harvey Keitel eventually turn against one another. So that that is the basis for for Blue Collar. What are your yeah, what are your uh, thoughts?
0: Well, I I I love. I, I don't know if you... Did you grow up around union guys? Is Uh -uh. Texas a union place? So I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Indianapolis. And I mean, there were some auto parts. There was um, Allison
1: Transmission. There was... You know... I mostly uh, oil and cattlemen. I don't know if there were a whole lot of union uh, for Texas riggers and things like that. I don't. I don't. I really don't know. Yeah. It wasn't ever. It wasn't ever. It came across my my uh, family. So I, I. You know, we weren't ever talked. We ever talked yeah. about. It. And of course, you know, being in a conservative South, unions are always just kind of talked about negatively. It was never really but you never really heard about it. You never really heard about guys going to union meetings. You never heard about you know paying their dues or, or anything like or running for office or anything like that around at least not in my, you know, my youth anyway.
0: Yeah. I I I wasn't and my family wasn't necessarily, you know, part of of this group. They weren't union guys. My my dad was a businessman in the in the printing industry. But I, you know, I had friends whose parents were electricians who were, you know, pipe fitters and other union types and um, the area of town we grew up in was pretty was pretty blue collar, and so I mean, this is a familiar, you know, kind of environment. Right? And and these guys, yeah, they they work hard, they work until the whistle, and then they go straight to the bar that's basically across the parking lot. And and I just I just love that. What I really like is that this film gives us kind of a picture of a specific place right, in a specific time, and especially like a specific time in in America when I don't know my union history all that well, but. See, at this point, I mean, unions were weakening and they would get kind of weaker as we as we go forward. And so you start to see more and more corruption because of that. But but that bar, that bar, that bar is like any kind of working blue collar bar. Um, And and it's and it just so that felt really real and, and, and familiar. And then these guys, again, they're a little more than archetypes. I don't think that they are. You're kind of standard. I think they are types of these characters, but they have their own sort of set of problems and fit in these categories. Yafit Koto's character wants nice things, right? He's single. He's a bastard. Yeah, he's an ex con, but he, you know, he wants to be able to afford like his his car, his women, right? his
1: cocaine, right? His <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right. And then Zeke, uh, Richard Pryor has. Twelve kids, or no? He says he has twelve kids to the IRS, <laughs> right? but he only has three. And so, when the taxman comes to do a kind of like on-the-spot audit, they go get the neighbors' kids, and switch clothes, and bring them in. Um, and then Keitel has to work a second job, right, to make to make ends meet. Has to work a second job to pay for his um, pay for his daughter's uh, braces, right? His right. Her orthodonture. Um but. I mean, as far as plot, there's not a whole lot of plot, and this is what I love about like um, Schrader's films too, is that he's much more moody and kind of like they're almost little scenes here and there rather than having this bigger like narrative arc.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right. The story is just these these workaday guys, and and, and really just talking about the lower classes. Um, you know, not to be denigrating at all. You wouldn't figure these, I I wouldn't call these guys even lower middle class. These are just, you know, these are nine to five, well, probably work work harder than that. But they're hourly guys that have to give up most of their wages to their union dues. And also then whatever they have left over goes directly to the bar across the street. Um, That's really the, and they're trying to find pleasure wherever they can and but these these are all broken men by and 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 because but they've done everything that they've they've done everything they're supposed to do their entire lives right and they're stuck here with these you know they're loving fathers they're they're not you know they're not bad family men you can argue right but they're really you know they party and they're they have dalliances with other women to that point we can put a pin in that particular piece of it. But also they really are just guys that are trying to provide for the family and trying to get one foot ahead of the next paycheck and they can't possibly do it. You know, there's and the scenes you talked about, the, you know, Gathek Kodo obviously seems like the more worldwide version of all of them. And he clearly has a little bit more, you know, the ability to, to not, he doesn't have quite as few, as many of the stressors that, that Pryor and Kaitel do. You know, there's a scene in the movie where Kaitel comes home and you know these are single income families most likely and his he can't afford orthodontry for his daughter and so she's gone and put uh, paper clips in her mouth, and her she comes home, and her mouth her mouth is just completely bloodied, and it's this heartbreaking thing where Kaitel's like, I can't. There's I, he doesn't you know he doesn't overreact. He just is just kind of broken by it, and it's like, fine, we'll we'll pay for it. We'll figure it out. Yeah. The the tax man scene with Pryor, which is one of the scenes, actually, Schrader said he would if he was rewriting it today, he'd take that out. I think mainly because it probably just looks. It, it, it looks like Prior is trying to get a is trying to trick or trying to try to break the law in a way that, and, and I, I don't necessarily. I think traders maybe being a little overly harsh on that mm-hmm. on the on the reading of that um, because it one it gives Prior really I think and he's outstanding in this movie but he gives him one of his best you know reliance. and he was like you know what if i had an army and a fucking navy i'd be a badass motherfucker too like and he's, he's talking about how like you know he's he you know the tax man comes and he says you've got you know you only have 3 kids and you said you had 6 and he's like well uh, you know i didn't have all my kids in a hospital and the neighbors That's happen to come over at the same time and they like change clothes and bring right. them all out and, and the guy's like look man these kids don't even know you know who they are they don't have names like this is not these aren't your kids and prior just goes off and it's like I got thirty bucks left every paycheck, and and that's it, man. What am I supposed to fucking do here? And you're going to charge me two grand on top of you know on penalties? Like I got nothing, and like he's kind of he just breaks in that moment, and yeah, Schrader showing this like this view into you know people who are busting their ass to to just make it day to day, and of course, yeah, you can also then point to well they do blow and they drink and they're, they're sneaking out on their wives. And, 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 but these guys at the end of the day are no different than anyone else other than they've got, you know, they, they, they just didn't get the breaks that, you know, and. Like I said, and they're getting it from both sides. I, I think what's one of the things that's so interesting, too, when you meet Richard Pryor, when you meet these guys, you know, it's it's they're pretty jovial at the beginning of it. They're in the bar. They're having a good time. Richard Pryor is giving Yafet Kodo a hard time about um, a great line about how if th- these women are leaving with him in the bar. And he's like, well, you better leave your fingerprints because he's going to eat up everything else. It's just a <laughs> great, and, I, and I, I would imagine, like, all of that was some of it may have been on the paper, but I, I guarantee you most of that was prior, prior improvising. You know, so again, you when you see them starting to complain and starting to push back against their union, they're complaining about. Little things, these these it, what you it's almost one of the things you can see it in the union bosses' faces. There's like Pryor's complaining about his locker being broken. It mean, have it been it has been broken for six months. So it's these little indignities that start to add up. There's a guy that that's also works with them who's trying to get a cold drink, and the and the drink machine constantly, uh, you know, stiffs him, doesn't doesn't give him his beverage, and eventually he takes a forklift and drives it into the machine, <laughs> which is brilliant. Which is
0: brilliant. I mean, and this is I think where where Schrader does such a good job of showing that it's not any one big thing that causes us to break, that causes us to <clears throat> go into revolt or to push back against the powers that be. It's these tiny things. It's, it's the cliche of a death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Pryor is screaming about his locker and he's like, look at my pinky, man. I have to use my pinky to open up this locker and I cut my pinky. It's, it's the scene with Keitel and the braces. It's that, and I know that that seems bigger, right? But it's just it's just finally that one last thing. He's like, okay, we'll do it. I'll, I'll find a way to pay for it. We'll do it. It's, I mean, these guys, they have they have fully bought in to the lie that we've all been told that if you work hard, you'll be okay. Right? Right. And and they're like but I'm not. Right? But I'm not. And and I think the scene with the tax man is really one scene that connects to I mean our current world. The IRS says not to get like too like political and like too too Marxist here like <laughs> like all one point. But the IRS is like,
1: "Okay, comrade. I know, I know.
0: I'm sorry." <laughs> but the IRS people from the IRS have said like we're not going after rich people for not paying their taxes because they can afford to hire lawyers to get out of it. We're right. going to go after the people who can't afford that, and that's exactly what's happening in that scene. Right? We we know that that people that make a ton of money don't pay as much taxes, relatively speaking, as people in the middle class, and 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 that is what Schrader is showing in that moment with Pryor, going, "What the fuck do you want me to do? <laughs> you know, I'm trying to get ahead, and I'm trying to use every loophole I can to have more money on the table for this family."
1: And there are pawns in the game on all on three different sides so there are pawns in the game for the union who where they pay up and these guys have cushy you know union leaders have cushy jobs and really do nothing other than take the money and then loan it out on top of you know and and really help don't do not help the workers at all they're getting screwed by the plant the plants up their ass the entire time it's always hounding them about doing jobs faster you know doing something longer and then they've got this FBI agent who wants them to come in and, and turn and you know and rat out the union and these guys don't have anywhere to turn it, so it's it's no question it's no it, you know them coming to the conclusion that you know, let's rob the union. Let's rob the office, and at least. And and what's crazy about the robbery is that they're only going to get like six thousand dollars, which or something along those lines. It's a very a small amount. It was, I think, it was like ten, wasn't it? Well, ten was what they said that they lost, but but I think ultimately, I don't oh. think it was actually going to be in there. So the okay. union, So okay. when the so when the robbery happens, they don't actually steal anything because the money wasn't actually right. there. It's just like petty cash that right. they got. It and like, but yeah. the union claims to the press that they stole ten to twenty thousand dollars because, the, because insurance the insurance. Yeah, but the guy that they had the job, you know, the guy that turned them on to the ability to to rob the union, he wanted ten percent and a thousand dollars on top. So clearly, they didn't even get that amount of money. They didn't get enough. And so these guys were. This was just another, you know, a few months worth of. This was a rent check for these guys. This was. This was dentistry. This was not going to set these guys up for life. They were going to still have to go back into the the work every single day, the plant every single day, and still work this out. This was just going to get them over the hump for a very, and, and and you also, these guys know that this money, as soon as they steal it, it's going to be gone. Richard Pryor, it says as, as much. He has to pay the IRS. Keitel has to pay, you know, for dentistry and. <laughs> the one of the like the, the one of the brief moment. This makes this movie sound like it's so heavy. It's really not though. Right. There's a lot of like back and forth. The camaraderie between the three men on camera was great. Odd, off enough, camera, not off so, camera so much. Was terrible. Right. Um, but when they actually. Commit the robbery, and they go to the Halloween store to get to get. It's so it's so funny. It's it's, it's just so comical. They one of them gets like googly eyeglasses with the springs coming out. They're not it, Richard Pryor has buck teeth. They're not disguised at all. Harvey Keitel
0: has has the arrow through his head. The Steve Martin arrow through his head. And when the security guard, the old booming security guard, when they when they ask him to identify. When he's in the hospital and the cops like, what do they look like? <laughs> and, and, and he goes, one guy had an arrow through his head, but it's just, it's so ridiculous, but it's so, it's so jovial. And so, but it's also played really deadpan, which, right, yeah. which makes like, it work so much better, I think. Too. Yes.
1: Yeah. There's, its there's no musical cue that makes it kind of wacky there. It, yeah. You're just staring at these guys okay. going, yeah, these guys wacky. can't win ever. And I loved it. So Pryor buys the disguises, but we don't see what
0: he buys. He's at the toy store with his kid and they're there together. He's putting stuff in the bag. And so we don't know until that happens that that's what he bought for disguises. And I I thought that that was funny and brilliant, but also like really well done on Trader's part to not. Right. Not play it it too heavy, but then not
1: not give it away. And so, yeah. So the robbery goes south. Um, Richard Pryor decides to hold on to this book that, uh, this ledger that has a list of loans in it, thinking that he can get one up on the union and, and potentially blackmail them for the money that they owe. The, you know, the person who set up the job, um, and really none of that, none of that works out at all. Essentially, the. You know, because it was two black men and a white guy, and they've been known to hang out together. Everyone basically knew who it was. Or at least the union knew who it was. Um, they start to put the the, the screws to the guys. Uh, Yathet Koto is is in a uh, spray painting area of the of the of the plant, and he gets stuck in there and then gets suffocated by the spray paint. Uh, so they know that they've murdered him. And before that, Koto
0: heard two guys in a bar, in in the in the local bar. That's right. right that's right. Calling totally um, Kaitel's, you know, family or wife, and saying, "Hey, you need to, or or is 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 Mister? I forget what what his last name was. Jerry's Jerry's last name mm-hmm. was, but you know, hey, is your husband there? Oh no. Okay. Well, this is the phone company. Do you have any problems or anything? And so they're gonna go over there to attack her. Kodo hears this, calls her, says, "Yeah, Jerry ripped his pants at the gas station. He needs you to bring him another pair." And so he's there waiting. And this, I think, is another good scene of Koto's the bachelor in this, but he's also, in a way, the protector of everyone. He's the he's the big guy. He's the muscle. And so he goes over there and sits in their house and waits for these guys to come in and just beats the shit out of them with a baseball bat. And
1: and, yeah, right. And and he's also the one the mob targeted first because of that, because right? Of that. Because yeah. he has no ties, right? There's no one going to investigate this guy, And he's an ex-con, he's, and he's, so he's, no he's one an cares. He's ex-con who deals in prostitutes and, 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 and drugs, cocaine, right? Yeah. So And the, loan sharks, and so, yeah. Right, so this guy, and, and he's the one who set up, knew to set up the job, so yeah, the, the mob clearly picks him because he'll be missed at least. Uh, Prior goes to the union heads to kind of try to play a hand. He plays it to where he gets the job of the, of the shop steward, the shop steward, mm. um, which he had hinted at earlier in the movie that he was wanting to run for oh, that. Or It's anyway. actually the union rep, right? Right. Oh, yes, yes. You're right. The yes. shop steward was one of the one that works for the plant. Right. Yeah. So he gets the union rep at the plant. Um, and the, it's, it's really kind of, a. there's a scene between him and Keitel. Once Keitel realizes that Pryor has kind of sold out this, you know, sold out their group and basically sold out Kaitel for sure and taken this cushy job that's worth 17 for a year and kind of set himself up where um, the union rep, they 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 tell Prior, look, this is just how it's going to be. This And look, and if it wasn't for us, and if it wasn't for us and their history of us, black guys like you wouldn't have, you wouldn't even be working in the plant. So you need to figure out that this is your best opportunity to be here. And Pryor goes to Kaitel and's like, "Look, if I'm going to have to kiss ass, I'm going to choose the asses who I kiss, and I'm going to do it on my own yeah. terms." But this is how this is how this is how hegemonic institutions stay in power,
0: right? I mean, this is exactly they make it seem normal. They make it seem look. They, they tell Zeke. They tell Richard Pryor. This is how it's done. This is how it's always been done. Right. So just. Go along with it. And it's like, oh, okay, this is really fucked up. But yeah, it's normal. So okay, cool. I get the job now. And this is and that's what Kaitel says. Like they killed Smokey. They killed Yafit Koto. And and he's just like, Look, man, I gotta feed my family. And that's it. And that's that's how they fool this guy. That's how they force him to kind of keep up with the with the everyday appearances. This is just how it goes. And so It's always been that way. Yeah, and
1: so Kaitel turns immediately to the FBI. Um, to take to play his hand as well, because that's all he has left at this point. And at that point, you know, the the really interesting thing that I think that happens at the end is how their friendship then devolves into racial slurs and just name calling. But it's brutal it, it it is. And, you know, how Pryor is accusing Keitel of being a turncoat and of being a rat and. Tyrell's is basically uh, you know uh, saying the same thing about prior and how he sold out Smokey. and then it comes to this head where at the end of the movie ends with both of them picking up basically pipe wrenches and, and about to you, you know and in the movie's fill, uh, freeze frames with a voiceover about how everyone gets you know how they play everybody against one another
0: in this in this beautiful scene where <laughs> this beautiful scene where they're all hooking <laughs> up with hookers and doing coke they have these really kind of sincere deep conversations Kytel's character starts talking about how he's gonna I'm not gonna work there forever I'm gonna find something else I'm gonna do something else and then he says I always say this when I'm coked up as this like defeat is like I know that I'm full of shit right. I, I know that it doesn't matter and, and Pryor has a similar kind yeah, of it's like I've never been good with money uh, You know. I, yeah. you know and, and so and then Smokey gives this kind of speech of like this is what they do this is how they sort of turn us all against each other Right. And then that's the voiceover that comes back at the end, right? This, this disembodied Yafit Kodo voice of saying like, yeah, this is what happens. This is how it happens.
1: For Schrader to be, he, these three films do feel like he is at the forefront of saying a lot of things that would then be followed on and said later on in, in movies that that I think he kind of touches on at the very beginning. And we'll talk, I have a little bit of notes when we talk about American Gigolo for sure. Yeah. But this comes out a year before Norma Ray, and Norma Ray wins the Oscar. You know, it, it, this was one of those movies that I think, it, it didn't get a lot of fanfare. Pryor is still known as a, I mean, obviously, this is really his only, like, I mean, he had done some dramatic kind of black exploitation roles before this, but this was his first and really his only dramatic role that he does, and especially moving on from this. Um, and it's, this movie is billed as a, which way is up kind of Richard Cryer kind of. And, and so it doesn't do well. It, it, you know, the advertising is completely off for it. The, the message gets kind of squashed. And this is a movie that doesn't really get talked about a lot, but it really was like one of these first messages as we're coming out of Vietnam and these movies that are coming out of this era where the American dream is not for everybody it doesn't exist for everybody and it's also done on the backs of these guys that you just ignore and this movie is i i don't know to me like this isn't it's really this should be a a a more heralded film than, than what it is especially for the performances of the three leads which again i the fact that Pryor wasn't nominated for an Oscar for this is, and again, I understand why, right? But it, but like this was a this would have been a role that should have launched him. And again, I know he got into cocaine with this, and he was in a bad place at this point. It's probably before this too that he got oh, yeah, cocaine. Oh yeah, for sure, right? for sure. Um, I think but, Schrader got into cocaine. But but they but this should have launched him into a career that wouldn't have led to the toy or you know it, hear no evil see no evil those types of things where it was just like he kind of got. Pigeonholed back into this fast-talking, vulgar, comedic presence. Mm-hmm. Which th- those movies, fine, but he had something to offer here that really could have taken him to a level that where he'd be way more revered and way more known. And, and again, there's not—it's not like Pryor is it's lacking for. Yeah, who's this no Richard delight. Pryor guy that you speak of? I don't think but, I've but, I've but heard known of him. but known no, for right. dramatic acting and, and known for another one of his amazing talents here.
0: Well, I mean, think of someone like like Adam Sandler.
1: Sure. I mean, or Richard or, uh, Robin Williams. Or, or Robin
0: Williams. Right. Sure. I am just thinking of like these comedic actors that we've seen turn in really incredible dramatic performances more than one. And you know, with Pryor here, it's really we're talking about this one and not all these other great dramatic roles that he had. That's right.
1: What. And and to this one bringing to the table, you know, what Robin Williams can do comedically, but what Pryor brought to the table here was improvisation in a dramatic sense that brought gravitas to a scene, not where he's cutting up and making other people laugh, right? He's, he's bringing stuff to this, to this, to this role. There are moments where he does that, but there's moments when he's standing up and talking about, you know, I I know what plant is short for it's short for plantation and, you know, flick my big motherfucker and all these like things that he's just, that are just so good. And you just know that that was prior in the moment bringing, all the anger and all yeah. of the passion you know to <clears throat> this to this role yeah he was so
0: I mean, they, they were also good but yeah he's the he's the standout there. but i also like that this film is not it's not a didactic film again it's not this thing that that stands up and says here is my big message it, i mean it right. lets that message play out and i and i think that that is something that we see in like a cross trader where he's not he just kind of
1: What's the, yeah, for a guy who comes from a Calvinist background, he does not preach to
0: you at all. Right. He just sort of lets it sit there, and then you take what you want from it. And this is— Okay, I'm going to jump into Pickpocket for one second. Yeah, yeah right? sure. Because I think this is something that he takes from Bresson and from, from, from Pickpocket especially, because there is no emotion in Pickpocket. There is no feeling from the actors. Everything is so— flat everything is so matter of fact because Bresson wanted us right as viewers to bring our shit to that film and then make meaning that way maybe maybe verson's like an early pioneer of reader response theory right but 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 he wanted us to sort of complete that that meaning that duchampian sense of of, of the viewer finishes the work and i think while blue collar isn't as strong in that way as Um, Schrader's future films, there is a sense of that where he's just like, this is
1: just a slice of life,
0: right? And then we get that message, from watching everything
1: play out. Yeah, I think with Blue Collar, he definitely wanted to get the message across, what he yeah. was trying to get across. I mean, because the, the, the last scene is supposed to invoke a socialist painting where you know, you've know got the workers at each other's throats, yeah. kind of, yeah. uh, and, and it does a good job of that. I It's a little bit, like, I think it could have just been slightly tighter, but. What? but I mean, it's definitely a first film. Sure, right? for sure.
0: Yeah, so uh, I, I, of course, I agree, but, but yeah, I mean, I think he's sort of onto something and showing something at that point. Oh, for yeah, absolutely, yeah.
1: absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just last notes. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite like tropes in movies that never gets talked about is that whenever you see somebody at a kitchen table with bills, you never—that's always a bad thing. <laughs> a bad thing. <laughs> that, <guy> is, <laughs> that person does that not have enough money to pay bills. No, no. <laughs> Let me ask: Have you ever done that? No. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh but I, I love those I scenes love, so much. I so love, good. I love to see kitchen tables sh- just strewn with, with bills, with
0: bills and like calculators and <laughs> pencils and like just the look of worry on someone's face. I have, I have, yes, yes I have and the never guy with an old
1: calculator <laughs> that just runs through the paper. <laughs> yes, what oh, do I do with this? Uh, she's like up all night. I, and it's like I've <laughs> run the numbers three times, Janet. We're not gonna be able to make this yes, much. <laughs> And and we'll talk about this in hardcore as well. And I know we talked about this offline, but but Schrader's t shirt game is on fucking. Oh my movies. god, I know. So like, so the thing that I did not know, and we talked about this earlier, but um, the, the, that Dizzy Gillespie had a run for president in 1964 with this amazing cabinet. I didn't even write it all down, but like Malcolm X, and like there was just a huge but wonderful. And, and
0: Charles Mingus would have been yes. Secretary of Peace, and I'm like, man, can you imagine that that administration? That would have been so. Yeah. Cool. So Smokey
1: wears a. Um a Dizzy Gillespie for president shirt, just in a brief scene where he's in kind of a montage working scene. Yeah. And then Harvey Keitel wears this great two all be patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese Big Mac <laughs> Big shirt, shirt. Uh, when he's at home one night. Uh, and yeah, so, and this will carry over into hardcore as well. But um, I, I, you know, just kind of just last last yeah. trailing thoughts about Blue Collar. Egg Bakley uh, Jr. is great in this, in his very small early role. Uh, Tracy Walter who is great in this, in kind of an uncredited role. Uh, Tracy Walter, you might you if you see if you look him up on IMDb, you'll recognize him. He was a character actor, most notably but in. He was the FBI agent, wasn't he? No, no, no. no, no. That was Who he was? was just a random user. Uh, ra- he was a random union guy, kind of talking in the background in one of the cafeteria uh, seats. He's the guy. He was like a henchman in, in Tim Burton's Batman. He kind of just shows up in those types of. Oh, things, kind of a long haired. Oh guy. no,
0: he was. um He was the number one
1: guy. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well um yes. he's also in hardcore. Yes, he's also um, in hardcore. So Ed Begley and and um Cliff DeYoung was who I was thinking of. Yes, Cliff Young was um, the was the FBI sorry, agent. FBI agent guy. Ed, both Ed Begley and Tracy uh Walter are in hardcore as well. Yeah. So yeah. I was gonna say like, like okay. kudos for Schrader for, for like really launching Ed Begley Jr. Yeah, so go Clip. see hard go see Blue Collar. Um it's uh not streaming anywhere, but you can pick it up on Blu-ray and, and um Which you on Amazon, yeah. Yet. Okay. All right. So hardcore hardcore. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, George C. Scott plays a Calvinist. Um, he, he's just, he's just a Calvinist. He's a <laughs> businessman, a Calvinist. And, um, his, you know, he, he lives this kind of very pious lifestyle. He's, he's they're, they're, they're during Christmas time one year, uh, him, his daughter who's in high school is going on a field trip with the church. They're going to Knott's Berry farm. And unfortunately on the trip, she does not come back and he hires a private detective, Peter Boyle to help her uh, to help him find her. And what he finds is not what he wanted to find. Um, <laughs> it, Peter Boyle comes across an eight millimeter stag film and shows it to George C. Scott and then they kind of dive into CD is it California? It's California, right? So it's LA, LA LA underground porn. Later they go to San Diego and San Francisco. And so George C. Scott kind of dives in to this uh, underground porn scene in, in Los Angeles and tries to keep, tries to find his daughter. So he keeps going from pornographer to pornographer. He he connects with um, girls who are in the pornography business. And ultimately he ends up finding his daughter. She wasn't kidnapped. Uh, She had actually run away. We find, out that George C. Scott's wife has left him at some point, and that he thought he was being a good dad, but clearly his strict upbringing—he wasn't listening to his daughter. She didn't believe that she was loved, and um, yes, yeah, so we dive deep into the hardcore por- porn scene of the of the early late seventies, early eighties, and watch George C. Scott kind of descend into, you know, this this seedy underbelly, but also this this world that he had thought himself better than and really kind of paid no attention to. He had lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is where Paul Trader was actually from. And so this was a this was a Midwestern man who went out to California to and then found the real world. And um, it's a, a real world. Or, yeah, a real world. Um, and it's an, it's an interesting movie. Um, Scott's really good in it. Uh, it. Kind of has its cake and eats it too a little bit, where it shows this pornography world as something that is dangerous and detrimental, but then also peppers itself with a ton of nudity, a uh, ton of really close kind of softcore scenes for a major mainstream film. Um, but yeah, no, what do you what do you, what do you well,
0: think of hardcore? So one of the things that I, I liked about <clears throat> hardcore is this is I think where. This is where I think Schrader really starts to, if not find his voice, discover what he wants his voice to be. And so part of the kind of flat, effectless style that was in Pickpocket shows up here. Because I don't think that George C. Scott, other than when he's fighting, really shows anything. It's just kind of a blank slate, a very matter-of-fact matter of approach.
1: Yeah, you you see him... Hide his face a few times when he's when he's watching pornography and when he's watching specifically right. hard scenes to watch. There's one where he's watching a really violent porn, and then the first time he sees his daughter on screen and uh, she's with two men, he's clearly broken up by this. Um, but yes, for them but you don't see. A major violent outburst or a major breakdown from him. He takes it all very matter of fact. Even when he's dealing with Peter Boyle, he gets a little upset with Peter Boyle because he's with another. When he finds him, he's with another young woman. But that seems to be the thing that upsets him the most is that he's using his money to and not trying to find his daughter, but you know having dalliances with young with the young prostitutes.
0: Right. Um, I like that because it sort of lets us. Stand in for him or really, I think, allow our emotions to go into that place rather than having to be sort of told by this character how we should how we should feel about this. Because that, I, I do I do wonder about the way Schrader looks at porn in this film as only sort of detrimental, only dangerous. It, it, it feels very much like he wanted to explore porn more, but also was still uh, keeping arm's length. We, we, we understand that the daughter goes off to do porn because she felt accepted there. I mean, she felt love there. But we also get the sense from Schrader that it was because she didn't get affection or love at home. And that's why people go do this. So it was a weird kind of like a, a weird, I don't know, semi-message in there that I don't necessarily think he intended, but it just comes off in a strange way. Yeah,
1: yeah, I I agree with you. I think that it, it is an <clears throat> interesting target for him, in this sense. And I think it's mainly because potentially to him it was so foreign at the particular point. You, you enter the film and it's a it's all adults talking about Calvinist things, right? You see a you see a young boy at a at a kitchen table watching adults talk about religion. And then you see a bunch of kids, a ton of kids in another room watching some ridiculous Christmas show and then another adult getting upset by that Christmas show that seemingly is innocuous. They're just dancing on TV. And he's like, oh, this crap. I can't, I can't, we should right. just, you know, I don't even know why we, why we have a TV. But the the kids are never spoken to. You know, they're, they're never really even acknowledged. Their desires aren't acknowledged. You see the daughter... And, you know, George C. Scott provides affection to her when she's getting on the bus. But the but the real true telling scene is when she's with her friend and her friends like, well, I was with the boy and he's doing this. uh, I forget what the whole thing is, but, you know, he's drawing his finger around her. Closer and and closer closer, and closer. and mm -hmm. And you have to tell him to stop. And it's this very kind of innocent teenage adolescent, even though they're probably a little too old. To, to be, be playing have, games be playing like that. It, that yeah. Right. Um, and and the da- and it's a really an interesting kind of telling scene where you can interpret it after you've seen the movie of like where the daughter's like, maybe she's seeing that as a little bit childish. And she sees the first opportunity that she gets to be out from under the thumb of her father and the church and getting to California and going to, you know, and again, they're going to Knott's Berry Farm. But now she's in this area where she can be on her own for a while. And she takes the opportunity to to run away. Yeah. And so yeah, I agree with that. That porn is an interesting, probably an easy target here. I think he could have very easily also gone with prostitution. But I think, I think Schrader maybe plays it a little bit, pulls it back because I don't think if he had gone the prostitution route, you can clearly see that that would have been too far. But pornography in this case, where if she's, willing to if she's a willing participant and she's of age there's really no harm in this yes it's seen as CD just because of the the um you know the the avenues in which it's shown and, and the places he has to go but in reality like most of the people that he meets they're all decent people I mean Boyle's a scumbag but he's a he's a he's a private he's detective, a, right? he's a
0: bigger scumbag than nikki who the sex worker that he ends up, I wouldn't say hiring, but but kind of coercing and um, yeah, hiring because he ends up paying, right? To help to help him find his daughter. I mean, she. I mean, she has this this speech to him that's kind of like, "Do you think you're better? You're no different than me." Right? I mean, right. we think about sex in a different way, but it's also the same way, right? We we both have this same idea of sex,
1: right? <laughs> that that the scene where he's explaining tulip in the Calvin. Um, tenants and about the, the, the idea that, that they're predestined to be saved and it doesn't matter what they do and they've already been chosen It that, that whole scene and her understanding of it is just really, really well done, you know, by Schrader, I, I think, and that's, you know, of it all, I, I, you know, I've, I've, I read some reviews about this and how, um, the, the, the relationship, between George C. Scott and and what was her name? I'm sorry, was it Sunny? Was it uh, Nikki? Nikki. Nikki was the was the character. Um, season Hubley. Hubley. Yes. Was See, the, yes. So, so between between Sonny. him and Nikki was unresolved, but I think that was the point. I think you you. I think, I think Scott is not supposed to come off as redeemed at the end of this movie. He does reconnect with his daughter. He does. Tell her that she that he wants her to come home, and then she eventually comes home with him. But he completely throws away his relationship with Nikki, and, and and Nikki, who's someone who's desperately looking for a father figure, in the sense of someone who's you know who wants to be and is 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 trying to help him, is trying to befriend him, and he leaves her at the end of the film without even barely a nod and leaves her in a town that she's not familiar with. He's brought her there and, and then the movie ends and that whole portion of it is, I, I think an indictment of what, you know of of what Trader was trying to portray in the, in the entire you know the entire it's that none of these things are better than one another that they're all just trying to survive they're all just trying to find love they're all just trying to find salvation in some sense and that they're all equally bankrupt and mm-hmm. you know and ultimately empty at the end of the day mm-hmm.
0: and 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 again I mean George C Scott's or <clears throat> Jake Van Dorn is the character's name his reliance on and then falling back into that illusion, that 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 idea of spectacle of who he thinks he is. He didn't learn anything. I mean, I, I'd be really interested to see what happens after they get home. How is he going to treat his daughter differently? Well, how is that community going to react or be any different? I, I mean, there is no real re- Redemption there at least in at least in my eyes and I think I think you know Schrader going for this sort of like Transcendental sort of thing in film of how like these sort of basic mundane things can lead to sort of like a spiritual awakening or spiritual recogni- recognition recognition or a transcendence into something else I don't think it happens in this film I don't know if he if he intended it to happen but this is trying for more of a redemption ending than Blue Collar for sure right? and, and I just think Scott ends up as the same person maybe he realizes oh wait I am kind of an asshole right? when he looks at Nikki at the end like, uh, and she's like well, whatever just walks away
1: Right, you know, and then Peter Boyle's like, just leave her. She belongs here. I mean, so there is no. Yeah, that that line was pretty crushing as that well. Was that was tough. I, you know, I think I think at the end of this, Scott goes back to the resignation that he. He, he, he probably puts the screws to his daughter even more. So now he probably pay, he probably pays closer attention, but is then driven more to keep tabs on her because he has nothing else. Really. He has this business, which is, you know, what allows him. I mean, but again, he's, he's so myopic on, on the colors of the, of the billboards. <laughs> what colors is, is blue? than he is actually, you know, anything else in his life. And yeah, it's, it's, and and like, he, like you said, he's learned nothing, and he's and he's also like, he has ingratiated himself into this environment. He you know he's put on the he's put on the affectations of him in a silk in a in a garish silk yeah, shirt. Yeah, because he played porn producer. Right. So he, he had at one point he's trying to find the the actor who acted with his daughter in the eight millimeter film. So he sets up this fake audition in a hotel room and he puts on a wig and this tight t-shirt and a mustache and he looks ridiculous <laughs> it's, um, so good. It's, it's yeah it's, it's awesome because it, it really just kind of it really does just put a a, a, a a wonderful face to it all and he just looks so and he looks so silly throughout the, and when he starts to go through and, he, and he, is, he does start to wear these tight pants and silk shirts mm-hmm. and open shirts with mm-hmm. chains and and he starts to try to finance you know fake finance films he tries to to get himself through in in different uh, adult bookstores and things like that. Uh, that whole piece of it is just, it's great George C. Scott, like putting, you it's know, that whole good. image of George yeah. C. Scott on, on its ear. <laughs>
0: it's, so, it's so good. Going back to how Schrader looks at looks at porn, I know this was 79. We think about, I think, pornography and sex work in in a much different way now where we think of sex work as actual work. And I don't think Schrader and and many people probably around Schrader thought of porn as as work or as a respectable kind of work. And even Nikki. Right. I mean, she's a character who's doing all these kind of side hustles in the porn industry to make ends meet. And at one point was strung out. Right. And has to kind of she's trying to get away from her pimp. Right. And this guy that kind of controls her. But I think it would have been interesting or it would be interesting if Schrader made that film now and how he would look at porn or the sex work industry and, and how he would incorporate maybe the the idea further of agency of some of these women, like of the daughter who runs away. And she's like, no, this is just what I want to do, right? I mean, right. This, is, right. this is what I find
1: interesting and what I find compelling and what I want to pursue. Yeah, the flip side of this movie is a movie that I would like to see to see this told from his daughter's perspective rather than a rather than a calvinist who's losing his faith and having a, to a confront. white middle-aged man, right. straight man. Which yeah, yeah. in 79 plays a lot better than what it <laughs> would today right. because we don't give a shit <laughs> about, <laughs> nor, about that guy. Nor anymore. nor should we. <laughs> right. No, because his story's been told. We get it. It's been told that yeah, I, this has clear parallels to taxi driver right where i mean Bickle is in a different type of stasis than than Scott is but Bickle has kind of isolated himself in this taxi cab and he looks at everything from a, from afar and he sees you know the world as this ugly place and he keeps himself in a very tiny apartment he has these these ridiculous ideals but then even then he dabbles in pornography and what worldlyism you know worldly things and and and, and you know Scott Van Dorn here has, has done the same thing it's just in a different manner he's wrapped himself in the Bible and his his community and doesn't even care to engage in what's beyond, beyond the walls again, just by the, by the evidence of like, well, you know, I don't even, why do we even have a TV in here? And, and, and he's seen as like the more progressive one because he's like, ah, don't worry about it. It's just Christmas. Just give him, you know, let him watch it. It's Christmas time. Like, so he's seen like he's the, the more, uh, you know, loose and and friendly guy, but, but ultimately like, yeah. And he never, but he never, allows himself, like even when he's talking about Calvinism and he's not trying to, his whole idea of predestination negates the idea of even trying to convert her. She's clearly lost, Nikki's clearly lost. Why, she is a tool and ends to a mean and he does not give a shit about her. There's no fatherly, And, and so you have to imagine that's exactly how he treated his daughter. It doesn't matter what you do. We are already predestined to go to heaven. Fuck this life. Like it doesn't matter, get through it. Do what you're told to do. Live a pious life, and then your reward will be someplace else. Why do I have to love you now? Right. Which is why you can. Under, I mean, again, the the interesting flip side of this is his wife's story and his daughter's story.
0: Yeah, because we don't find out until later when Nikki confronts him. She's like, "Your wife didn't really die," and I just love that. Like, she's just like, "Your wife isn't dead," and he's like, "No." <laughs> she's like, "Yeah, I can see why she left you." Right. Which also begs the question of why did she leave the daughter behind? I mean, right. I know, I mean... Uh, and there could I, have been a ton of... Yeah. I'm not... Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, that was not not, not to accuse
1: um, Van Dorn's ex-wife of being a bad mother. <laughs> I just I thought about, like, wait, why did she leave the daughter? I mean, she had to know that this guy... Was, and we don't but, necessarily know that she left the daughter. She could still be in, in, in Grand River. I mean, like, yeah, so I, I get your point. Right, right, but, right, right, but, right. right.
0: But, um, I, one of the things I really like about... And this, I mean, I kind of said this earlier, but, but Schrader just gives us an occasion for story and then just, like, lets it go. Right? I mean, there is... I mean, there's no real, like, narrative structure here in terms of, of, of plot. It's just, like, the plot is guy fi- guy's going to find his daughter. And, like, that's it. And then he just kind of lets the mood
1: and the the, the kind of air in the room sort of take over, I think, in a lot of these scenes. Yeah, Boyle, Boyle is the most, like animated character out of all of them he's and he's kind of the one that's leading us through the the different environments right yeah. I, even though he's not that big of a presence and man is in desperate need of a comb but like it, <laughs> but, it but he's so just, wonderful like I it's I, Boyle's career is It's so, like I said, it's it has its ups and downs. I I, will talk. I want to talk about it a little bit later. Um, Okay. Not just, just, it's just in passing, not not too much detail. But he's, I think he's really good in this movie, and he's the only one that really kind of brings an emotional aspect to this because he's also, but because he's seen as the as the slimier version of any of these characters, right? He seems like he's the the id, right? He goes out and he's he sits down and watches the porn shoot, being you know being he watches the pornography. He even recognizes one of the. Yeah, he's like, hey, is that? right and he's and the, and the producers like yeah come have a seat and he's having sex with one young women he's he's you know chubby and and just and just gangly and, and and unkempt and and grotesque in a lot of ways and it's this idea that he's the one who's more knowing of everybody's environment. He he knows how to navigate Grand Rapids, Michigan. He knows how to navigate California. He shows up in places where he. Why is he there? And but just to move move the story along. And it does. And like it's never intrusive. It's never like oh why. I mean you just accept it. It's yeah that character it doesn't, but he doesn't belong in this movie no, or any sort of Basan movie for, for sure. <laughs> but, right, uh, right. But, but yeah, he's great.
0: Because he's his, great. Is his eyes just are nonstop the entire time. I mean, they're wide and they're looking around and they're just squirrely because like, he's just squirrely. But no, he's, yeah, he's fantastic. He's, uh, but I, yeah, it was weird. He was like a weird character in that film. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't quite get it, but, but, but I loved it.
1: Yeah. Um, it, I do think it would be interesting to see how this would be made today. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Because, again, what's your big bad? Is it, is, it, is it sex trafficking at this point? But, again, that removes the agency of the daughter. So this wasn't something she chose to be in pornography. You're clearly not going to be choosing to be. I mean, it could be prostitution. But, again, you'd have to give her something that was shocking. But then also... You know, but uh, I think the shocking thing would be someone's father trying to get them
0: out of this. I mean, what if she's an OnlyFans, you know, cam girl or whatever? And I mean, uh, uh, right. I mean, and some parent has, I mean, obviously, parents, some parents are going to have problems with that. And it's this guy, you know, in his like late night trolling, somehow like comes across her on Pornhub or so. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, do but you- I just
1: wonder if there has to be like a big. Right. Uh, do you think uh, so? What, what's your take on the nudity aspect of this movie and the pornography aspect, and kind of showing this? What could be considered gratuitous sex scenes in a movie that's trying to portray the movie as, or that as a bad? I, I, do you think I that think, he's trying to do both of those? I think it? that's my kind of
0: question is what is he trying to do with that? Because I think he's clearly interested on more than a good or bad level. I think that you can be, I think someone like Trader can go, okay, I don't understand this. Let me find out. I'm curious. Let me find out. But I think he sort of hedges his bets in this film where it's never sort of fully bad and it's never sort of fully exploratory or, or like, okay, I, I accept this as a filmmaker for what it is. Right? Even though he was like shooting and, and, and filming in these actual places. He right. was going to bookstores, going to these theaters and, and filming there. I, I think for a movie about porn, you have to show it you have to, sh- and, and I think we'll talk about this too in American Gigolo, but I, I think that you have to, and if we're sitting down to watch a film about porn or porn is a subject, we have to expect a fair amount of of nudity and a fair amount of at least, you know, semi sex projected on on screen. And, right. and I mean, I don't know if you're going to see a film or if you sit down to watch a film called hardcore and you're shocked
1: that there's sex in it,
0: Right. what what did you expect to see? And I'm
1: wondering, now I'm I'm trying to think back of, of one, obviously, uh, you know, we're bringing our own biases into Uh, the movie as you do, as everyone does. But I'm trying to think back. I don't recall a scene where there's really anything like you don't ever see someone strung out. You don't see someone, you see the violent porn, but it's never given to the sense that it's not consensual and she's clearly not being harmed. It's just, it's just, you know, titillation. And, where you see Scott's reaction, which is horrif you know horrified, but there's but at no point do you see even you know even his daughter as being treated poorly. Right. I mean, you see her having sex, but you don't ever see her being beaten. You don't ever see her strung out on drugs. Now, they do make some allusions to that she was given drugs and that because there was some like the person who's kind of her handler talks. that there's talk about how he. When he's trying to find this particular you know person that talks about how he potentially could be giving her drugs to get, yeah. but when he finds her, it clearly is this is her choice. I am here because these people have accepted me. These people have shown me love. These people have given me something that you clearly haven't given. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: It's, but but, it's but good. I mean, none of the sex is ever right. It's never. I mean, to Everyone are defined gratuitous, but it's never anything right. that seems, at least with the daughter, overly violent. Or, or, and not forced at all. She seems to be a, a willing, a, a wanting participant, right? She's there in in charge. And even one of the guys says like, oh, she's crazy. Like she was like too too <laughs> right, sort of like right. energetic and too excited about this. When he finally finds her at the bar, I mean, she's upset to see him. She does not, and not in a like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed. And I'm like right, ashamed, right, right. But ashamed, but of like, what I've done. get away from me. Like, I don't want to go back with you. So I think, yeah. I, I mean, have you ever seen, <laughs> have you ever seen the French film Baisemois? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there, there's a film where, who did, I think Peter Travers, I could be wrong, but described it as Thelma and Louise with actual penetration. <laughs> Which I thought was, but again, like if you're going into a film like that, and you're not expecting to see the,
1: the, the act, then w- w- what right. did you think you were going to see? <clears throat> Especially when you know what it translates to. Right, 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 right. <laughs> that was, have you read
0: the novel? I haven't read the novel. I have not, um, no. The New York Review of Books did this was like a last last
1: year a couple you years said this ago. Word books? What do you what's what does that mean?
0: I know I know this is a film podcast, but uh, <laughs> I like I like words. Um, <laughs> New York Review of Books did a did a a, a kind of extended piece on uh, Virgin Despons, the the writer, and, and 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 her kind of a lot of that is in some ways autobiographical. Sure, and sure, so, right. um, but I mean, really interesting and a really, but again, like her take and her. Ideas and experience of sex are vastly different than than depicted here in hardcore. Mm-hmm. So, so <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down. You liked it, hardcore? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, too. I I liked it. I mean, I think that there's there's some things that are left wanting, but I think overall, and like I said, I think it's a it's an interesting progression from blue collar to this, and how Schrader is, I think, really starting to figure out what he wants these films to be, and I think even if you like forecast into the future, that Boyle character is gone, right? Sure. So if you look at some of the, the films later, everybody has a little bit more of that flat, effectless thing that he's going for, that he wants to go for. You know, Boyle's not in, Boyle, the Boyle character is not in Light Sleeper, right? Not in First Reform, not in Card Counter, right? right? And, and everybody is much more flat on purpose. And so I think he's figuring that out in this film. And, yeah no I like that, the that it's not quote unquote plot heavy
1: because I don't really yeah no this I mean this seems like an autobiographical um, film for him right I mean this films this this feels like him finding he's both sides of the coin in this story and right. and it's and it looked it looked at like that it really is snapshot of, of his career that I think is really
0: yeah yeah I, I don't think you could have American Gigolo without
1: this. Oh, I agree. Right. So, yeah, Yeah. I mean, I
0: think totally he found some, he was like getting his footing and then found it.
1: So on to American Gigolo, the iconic 80s Richard Gere film. (laughs) Neo-noir, do we call it that? Uh, Yeah. So American Gigolo is about Richard Gere. He is the American Gigolo. He is a... He is a man for hire. He performs a whole bevy of acts for different, usually older women, wealthy women. Um, He obviously uh, sleeps with them for money. Um, He is kind of a, a free agent in the sense that he works for a couple of different pimps. He is very wealthy, he's very, very good at what he does. And he kind of plays Things kind of fast and loose and he where where I said he he plays pimps against one another. He takes his own jobs that disturbs both of the pimps, um, but he doesn't seem to care. He's 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 very, very good at what he does. he finds himself coming across a young woman who he typically does not engage with because he only likes to deal with younger women. Uh, I'm sorry, older women, sorry. And so he finds this younger woman, he starts to find him, himself having feelings for this for this woman. Um, and it kind of, kind of creates a conflict in his life. During this time, he's set up by one of his pimps to go and cuckold this rich man and his wife. Ultimately, that rich man and his wife, his wife ends up turning up dead. And Richard Gere gets framed for the murder. And then it's him trying to essentially... Prove that prove his innocence, and he tries to go back to the the class of people and the people that he worked with in the past to ho- help him out, provide him alibis, provide him um, money, and and the, the ability to escape this persecution. They all at this point want had want to have nothing to do with him, and so it's then it's his story of trying to free himself from this from this uh, crime that everyone thinks that he's done that he hasn't done. And um, that's the that's the synopsis of the film.
0: Yeah, Richard Gere as Julian K is this—he's so much like a man about town. Right? So, like for one woman, he he goes antiquing with her, right? and yes, the implication is later that they have sex or or, or whatever. But but he's there as this kind of confidant to go antiquing with and to yeah, he provides a
1: service to be he, he provides more than just sex, right? right? He's gone beyond just, yes, he does have sex and he does satisfy these women, but it's not, but it's not just in the bedroom. He, he's, he befriends them. He, he provides them with company. Um, he, of, of underst- a kind that they haven't
0: had, right? He understands, time. he
1: understands their needs beyond their sexual desires. And that's what ultimately has made him so successful. Yeah.
0: And this is where I think that he, and, and, and this goes back to this like spectacle and illusion thing that he that he buys into that he thinks that by knowing six languages and 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 and, and being able and studying to studying a seventh
1: right <laughs> yeah studying a seventh
0: <laughs> working on swedish right? <laughs> and being able to look at antique chest of drawers and, and seeing if they've been sort of, you know, worked on or tampered with and, and being able to sort of establish their value. He thinks that that is going to some way kind of like buy him entry into this glamorous world where he's,
1: he doesn't realize that all he is is a rented thing. Right, and everything uh, that, that about is him is, is an artifice, right? He, he, he has everything. all the trappings, so he uses his money to buy all the trappings of the society that he desperately wants to be part of. He has a convertible Mercedes, he has all of the he, he has a wonderful apartment on that looks overlooks the beach he has armani suits he has the most up to date uh, stereo, stereo system equipment, right mm-hmm. so he
0: has he has paintings right i mean original paintings of some kind in his in in his apartment right he has he has original artwork right? i mean he has he he's playing the part of a sophisticate even if he isn't right he's just playing a part and and that is the thing that really gets him into trouble because he thinks that he can sort of transcend this part so when he when he goes to Nina Van Pallant of of the long farewell when he goes to her and, and asks for help she's more of like the high class uh, madam she's she rejects him because she feels
1: rejected because Julian Richard Gere forgot his place right he forgot where he came he from he forgot where he came from he forgot who, who propped him up and gave him entrance right 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 well because then really who gave him entrance was bill duke i fucking love bill, <laughs> bill duke Duke's oh, he's so good like I mean, it's, it's even as a director bill duke i know like, oh he is, and he looked and he looked tough yeah i mean <laughs> i mean like when you once you get like just i forget when predator is but just a few years later he's i mean it's not even a decade later he's just Gigantic and jacked. Yeah. And now in this, he's just lithe and like, I mean. And and, and he's always had this kind of... mm. I would say menacing look. Yeah. look, but even like as the cop Minister society. Like it's just right? a seriousness to him that 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 he brings to the table. Like it's like I don't know what it is about his eyes, oh, but like it's just there's no shit just, taken right No.
0: It's, so anytime that I mess up, I hear Bill Duke's voice from Minister Society going, You know you don't fucked up, right? You know you don't fucked <laughs> up. And I'm just like, shit. <laughs> so, but that is like stuck with me. But the way he says that is so is so menacing, <laughs> so scary. And so like I know. And I will get you at some point. So um yeah, but you know, that's where he came from. I mean, this guy Leon, right? Bill Duke plays Leon, who who dabbles in sort of both Lower the straight class, and gay world of right. Yeah, up he and,
1: Duke does anything. Duke yes. is about the money he will provide men to whatever, you know, service that that that, that people are asking of him. So if he's if if it's a man who wants to be cuckolded, he'll provide that. If it's an SNM bondage thing, if it's a gay thing, he provides Friends. all of that. Yeah. And Yes, Kay got his start. Gear got his start with Duke and has kind of branched out and moved to beyond. He still goes back occasionally. As but he a, calls in
0: favors, right? Because right, I mean, like right.
1: that's how he ended up at that at that house, um, cuckolding the,
0: the husband where like Leon calls him and he's like, I need a favor. And he's like, oh, go ask so-and-so. And he's like, well, I can't. I can't find him. All right, fine, I'll do it just right. this one time. And he, yeah, and he keeps going. And, and at the end, he goes back to that world too. And what I love is that Bill Duke says, Don't trust these high-class people. They'll turn on you. And they do, right? And he's right. And at the end, they do. This, so this film, can we talk about pickpocket in conjunction no, with this okay yeah. so i mean this film is so parallel to to pickpocket um,
1: it, go ahead and explain pickpocket so so pickpocket we, is, we, 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 is, we danced around it but we i know actually talked yeah. to
0: it. so pickpocket is brisson's film from 1959 and it is it's a fairly short film yeah, it's, it's an like hour it's 16 like, yeah hour 16 and it's essentially the making of a pickpocket it's it's in some way fashioned um on Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, where Michelle, our pickpocket, sort of thinks that there's a certain class of men that should be able to do whatever they want, right? Or a certain class of person that
1: should be able to do whatever they want, because in the end, the good will outbalance the bad. And well, and they're above it, right? They're right. geniuses, and they're yes. so good at what they do that, and, and Gear says this in the movie as well, don't you think that there's people out there right. that we should just forgive, or let do whatever they want to do, because they are our betters. Right? They're, they're better than, and of course, they're spe- both pickpocket, you know, both Michelle and gear are, are speaking about themselves. Right. I mean, correct. But this idea of like, why are you punishing me for doing something that essentially everybody does or wants to do? Right. And I just happen to be good at this thing. Right. So I should be able to do it. Right. And so, um, Michelle, our
0: pickpocket, sees a pickpocket on the metro and he emulates that and he gets better and better but he kind of gets caught by somebody on the subway eventually another pickpocket sees him and trains him to become a better pickpocket or like the best pickpocket all the while there is a cop who has taken an interest in michelle and this is where (laughs) This is what's so interesting about Pickpocket is that it does all the things that you don't expect it to do or all the things that you expect it to do in a crime story. It just
1: doesn't do. There's no real cat and mouse. That, I mean it's a crime movie. No, in fact, and in the, there's in, no, in the scene where he's supposed to be caught, you see him being followed and you see him in the cop car. You don't actually see him being never caught. Seen get caught. It, uh, and that, the cop that, almost allows him to do what he wants well, to do. Right. And the, the
0: the film opens with Michelle stealing money. Right from at, at the racetrack, and then he gets caught. And yeah, you 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 never see him get caught. You just see him then in the cop car, and in the end, the cops like, "Well, I can't prove it, so you can go." And then yeah, there's a sort of following, but letting him do sort of whatever he wants until at a certain point, it just don't. And then because you get the feeling that Michelle wants to be caught at this point for some reason. It never really. But again, this is this is what I part of the brilliance I think of this film is that everything is so flat that. We have no idea why Michelle wants to get caught. We have no idea why Michelle won't go see his mother. I mean, we understand because he like stole money from her, but but there's something else right. there too. But we get to bring all that stuff to it, right? We get to sort of supply that emotion because almost there's no a, emotion almost for us
1: to a desperation, right? While you're watching this movie, you're like, "Somebody hug somebody, know, somebody, I know, I somebody don't. do something with your face, <laughs> smile, frown, cry." But it's just it's nothing. And and I forget the girl's name in Pickpocket, but well, her but, name's Jean. The character's oh, name right, is Jean. Jean. Right. Yeah. And so those two together, they're just I wouldn't say monotone because that's that, that's doing that a disservice, but but. The flatness of the performances and the way that they stare at the camera and it's or just off into the distance and give you nothing. You're just draw, it's weirdly drawing you into this movie of like, I I desperately wanted to do something. something. But that's but that's what Brisson wanted, right? right? And that's right. how he kept our attention the whole time, which is which is right, fascinating. Because, because one, the action on the screen, one, he's not a particular the, the, the pickpocket. Like you go and watch something like uh, Focus that sure. Will Smith yeah. thing. Where any
0: kind any kind of heist crime movie, right, right? Cool con man like, movie. Yeah, tied you know, like, into oh, it. Oh, that's so amazing. I want
1: to do that. This, you're like, uh, okay, he's he's literally just sticking his hand in someone's pocket yeah, and taking like, the- I would have felt that.
0: Like, what are you doing, right? Like, <laughs> right. I wear watches. That's
1: not going to happen. <laughs> right. Like, everything about it, you're just like, there's nothing, there's nothing- overly engaging about this, but it is mesmerizing. Yeah, it was it's, it, it's such a cool trick that Brassan does. And he does this in all of his
0: films, right? Where that flat, effectless sort of approach makes us pay attention and we become really active active filmmakers at that point. We're making meaning as we're watching, right? We are so engaged because we're so annoyed. Right? Right. <laughs> or because we're forced to be. But that's what and that's what then allows the ending to be such a kind of surprise and jump because there's one moment in that film where Michelle shows emotion and it's at the end. And, and, and it's, I I think, wow, what did I, I I think somewhere it was said that Brisson wanted to make us jump and that's how he made us jump at the end. Right. It's not as scary, but it's a surprise. But then
1: it ends like the, the, the one, one moment of elation that you get the one kind of internal relief that you're allowed. And then the movie, Cuts to black. Of course. And you're left with like this longing for this film to go on yeah. to see this story play but, out. But but this is
0: okay. This is part of what's called this is a technical term that 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 I use in, in writing, right? It's called the double oomph ending. <laughs> it's so technical. But it's that a good ending should surprise us twice. Right. So in this film, the surprise is, whoa, this emotion. Right? And it's like, right. where did that come from? Okay, that's a surprise. But then like the second surprise should allow us to kind of reconsider the work from the beginning and make us rethink kind of what we just saw or read. Right. And I think that it's such a subtle way to do that because we are sitting there going, okay, wait, what just happened? What did I just watch? How did this, how does all this kind of go back on each other? Right, right? And, and it's just brilliant. Yeah, um, and, and it's such a short film, and this plays. I mean, a direct. I mean, this is Schrader, kind of. Right. It's, it's a, it's a homage. direct homage. Yeah. And, and and he says as much. What something? So the the French film critic Serge Dany he wrote about American Gigolo, and he's like, look, clearly this is Schrader doing Brasson doing Pickpocket, but he says. For this to really be done right, a la Bresson, this would have to be a hardcore porno. <laughs> yeah, right? because right, we don't see, we barely see sex. Because
1: his crime is, is, is the gigolo part, it, right? Yeah, it's,
0: exactly. Right? right, his crime, his becoming a pickpocket, we
1: watch it, right? We watch it. Well, we watch him become that. And the sex scene, that you, there, there's titillation, right? You see right. naked girls, sure. Uh, but the sex scene that he does have, the one that we see with Lauren Hutton, mm-hmm. is filmed just like it would appear in Pickpocket. Right. You it's, see her face. You see these, clo- these like odd close-ups. There's no emotion at all. And the sex. It's nope. very. It's just very rote. It's yeah. very passionless, and so that whole section. You're right. I mean, the, 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 there's nothing to that scene whatsoever, which makes, and I think, which makes the casting perfect. Because had they casted like, I know Lauren Hutton was the first choice, but I and neither was Richard Gere. Right, and and we. Well, and I'll get to that yeah. in a little bit. But like the the her in this scene and the kind of almost lack of chemistry that those two had played so well to what he was trying to accomplish, which I know sounds counterintuitive to filmmaking Completely. But it's, but, but, that's, but that's back to Bresson, that everything that we think of as a film, Bresson was like, I'm not
0: doing that. I'm not cutting where you think I should cut, right? right? I'm going to cut somewhere else. I'm going to make you sit there for a minute and stare at this door before it opens. <laughs> right? Or I'm not going to show you this chase in the crime, right? I'm just going to show you this. I'm not going to show you emotion or chemistry between these two actors. And that's what I think... Yeah, Schrader gets that and does does well in that. He does I, well. I don't think
1: yeah. he completely pulls it off. And I think oh, no, studio, no, no, no. studio I, interference probably would not sure. have allowed him to like sure. completely cut it on a on a downer note or not on a not happy ending or where where Kay is But know, I think
0: he wanted to that. Oh, oh I a hundred percent agree. Yeah.
1: I, I think had he given had he been given, you know, final cut or whatever, I and mean, maybe he had it and maybe, you know, who knows what happened yeah. at the end of the day. But I, I think that he does pull back and go American a little bit more than, obviously what Bresson would have. (laughs) You mean Schrader's not French? But these sex
0: scenes, back to the sex scene and how it it really does sort of mirror and emulate Bresson there too, where it's all synecdoche, it's all parts, right? It's all metonymy where these, we understand that they're having sex because we see their legs in a certain way or we see their hands in a certain way, but we never, we just never see the act. And I don't, I mean, again, like I think if this were like Bresson, you'd have to see the actual act because instead sex is just a theme in the film. It's not like an actual thing. Like, like even
1: the, even the nudity, (laughs) even gears nudity is presented as a matter of fact more than it it is titillation. I mean, it's surprising because it just doesn't happen that often, especially in 1980.
0: That was like one of the first like major kind of
1: major, actor doing full uh, on I, Yeah, I, I can't mean, think of another one that wouldn't have been just somebody in the, I mean, it happens way more often now, thanks to Ewan McGregor, and he taking his dick out in every <laughs> movie. But but yeah, this would have been, I mean, I would have, and again, probably what led to a lot of the box office success of this movie was seeing Greer, i have Greer, seeing <laughs> gear uh, all natural, but I mean, and again, but nothing—it's—it's it's shocking in a sense that it just didn't happen very often. Right. Like it wasn't shocking right. in the sense where you weren't—it it just happened. Like he yeah. just walks to you know his window and is looking at the window and it has a soliloquy. Yeah. But that's really about it.
0: I—I I think I think some of—and and just to make sure we're clear, I—I I like this film. I think this is yeah. a good movie. I think it's a really good movie. But I think some of what held Schrader back in Hardcore also held him back here. I think he's looser and more willing to sort of engage with this this theme or this subject matter, but he's still kind of like, oh, I'm not sure how how close to get in there, especially because everything else is so flat and, and affectless that that he's not letting some of this other
1: stuff do the work of filling in there. I, I think this, I think that methodology tied to this film holds it back a little bit more than it needs to. Yeah. I, I think, again, and, and talking about, I'm trying to have a cake and eat it too, having this thriller that, of, of gear trying to get out of a murder mystery and, and trying to figure out who's setting him up and trying to evade the police doesn't play as well with this, you know, emotionless, right. Core. Right. So I, I think I, to me of the three films, this is probably my least, I liked it. It's probably my least favorite. It's the one that I can, I think oh, I okay. talk about the most, but I think okay. ultimately like, I, th- you know, having that, pullback of the emotional investment of this movie harms it in a way where once gear gets to the conclusion you know that's duke that set him up and duke set him up because hey man i don't i don't like you yeah there's no good reason i for just it. needed like, you somebody know, but I, need to, some, I needed somebody needed a fall and, guy. and i just i just i never really liked you man it's a cool it's a cool way to do it um but there's so much that like that happens in between then where he has to find the jewels that are planted under his car. So there's a lot that happens. Like it it almost need, needed to be cut down and shortened quite a bit where you didn't have, where it was just, everything was just, again, more matter of fact, yeah. a, and, and rather than it being, okay, we're trying to do this thriller, but also trying to do it in a sense where right. we're trying to evoke. He, he was really
0: trying to do Brisson. He was really trying to, I mean, I mean down to the crime story, right? Where sure. we never see the, the cop just sort of pops up and says, Hi, I've been watching you. I'm going to get you. I mean, in the Hector same L- thing. Hector Elizondo's
1: great in this, yeah, by because he,
0: but he's doing that same role, right? Where right. he yes. just walks up yeah. and he's like, he's like, what do you think of my new suit? Yeah, right? he's smug about he's it. He's so
1: good. He, 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 Hector completely understands uh, Kay throughout the entire film. He has a button on the entire time. Yeah. He, he, that's the one thing that's happening here that I don't think happens in Pickpocket is that the outer forces around Gears character are constantly ping ponging him around. Yeah. They yeah. know how to manipulate him. Yeah. They ignore him when they need to ignore him. They use him when they need to use him. They'll turn him, uh, you know. They'll, they'll, you know, make him pretend that he's gay when they need, you know, when. So and everybody, the the high society, the low society, the cops, they're playing him for the fool. In fact, almost all of them know he didn't do this. They don't give a shit. If somebody's got to go down. Fine, fuck it. Let him yeah. be that guy because we don't care about it. He doesn't exist. Right. Again, he's forgotten what his station. Was or is supposed to be right, and he and he's and, he, and now he's a part of no world whatsoever. He never made it to high society. He w- now he's no longer welcome in low society. And the cop is willing to twist the screws. And the cop doesn't. And Hector doesn't even really care if he did it or not. Yeah. All they want to do is find somebody to pin the murder on. Yep. just Which is like everybody else. It's just like it's just like in The Wire, right? You just got
0: to close the cases, right? <laughs> turn turn right. the what is it? Turn the red right. names to black or whatever. Oh, have it's you ever like, read you
1: know. that book? The homicide book that's that's based on the year of oh. the story. Um,
0: oh, the uh, Davidson, the actual Davis- No. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. no,
1: no, no that no, is no. a eye opening because the wire is depressing enough in right. terms of how systems like actually work, and so yeah, no, the whole thing is about he <clears throat> took a year and spent, you right. know, kind of this entrenched with the Baltimore, um, you know,
0: because well, he, I mean, he was trained as a journalist, he wasn't right. a journalist, yeah. and it,
1: that's basically it. They, they talk about one case that goes through that they never close, but you know, that it's just them getting the red ball and trying to trying to close so it out, and, and yeah, it's it's depressing <laughs> as fuck, but, but hey, uh,
0: this is, uh, I, I don't know what you mean. I think that our systems of power and our systems, are good, there's nothing wrong with them. They all work exactly how they're supposed to work, right? Right, which maybe design, that was okay.
1: more truthful than I think it really <laughs> was meant to be. Back to blue collar. Yeah, right, right. Um, um, I, what I love about the cop, and, and again, the, the, what I love about Hector Elizondo's character is that he does take... Gear's advice. Gear gives him such a hard time at the beginning about what's your posture doing. What are you? What's with this suit? What are you down, doing? Get like, better like, clothes. Like, what is this body? What's your body doing? What is this, like? Yeah, it's like oh, you know, you don't got to do a lot. But this, by the end of the movie, when he finally busts him, he's actually in an Armani suit. Yeah. He's like put together. He looks good. It's so funny. It's such a fuck you to Gear. Like you know what? I could do this too, motherfucker. I could do this. You're, what you've done here is nothing. You've done nothing, and you don't even. And yeah. Eventually, he realizes it, right? I mean, that the whole point of pickpocket. And the whole point I mean, I guess I shouldn't say the whole point of pickpocket, but the whole point for American Gigolo is that Gere does come to realize that he's not part of this high society, that it's completely forgotten him. And, and it's completely, it's, it even knows that he exists. Like he does, he's not pulling one over. Like the, the the women that he's sleeping with, their husbands know about it. They don't care. They're rich. They don't care. They're having their own affairs on the other side as well. He's not even a thorn in their side. He's disposable. Right. And so he goes home and he tears up all of his things. He goes home and he's looking for, you know, he's supposedly looking for the jewels but he goes home and he tears apart his mercedes he tears apart his stereo equipment he tears apart all these like this you know expensive pottery in his house and completely tears it apart because yeah. he comes to realize that it's all bullshit it, 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 none of it mattered his whole entire life his whole entire philosophy has been built on lies and and yeah, it's all bullshit.
0: It's all it's just a construct. It is just a spectacle that and, he has bought into, and he's bought into the
1: spectacle of himself. And of course, you know, and, and this this saving grace of Kay and the saving grace of 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 is is the one woman that he's al- kind of allowed himself to fall in love with, and has fallen in love with him. So that's the, that's the through line of the movie that kind of redeems him at the end is that he had never let himself be with younger women or to fall in love with women um, you know, because he saw no challenge in it, right? There right. was no, like, there was nothing. It wasn't like learning a language. It wasn't like satisfying an older woman who's been around the block. Younger women, you know, he or, knew how to, he knew how to, have, to have sex. An, or, he knew or, how to give somebody an orgasm. Right. Giving an orgasm was, was the easiest thing that he could possibly Except do. Except for like the one woman that took like three hours. And <laughs> right. Said, but, but, right, but again, that was what that, that was, it was.
0: He was like, oh, I got such a challenge and satisfaction out of that. Right. Because he doesn't know how to
1: receive pleasure. Right. He doesn't know how to, and I just and that's, think why, and gen- that's why Laura Hutton, you know, the, the, is is reluctant, is because she doesn't believe that she can give a gigolo the pleasure that he right. would want, you know, right. or that you know that she wants to be able to give to her lover. Well, and
0: she even says at one point, she's like, "I don't want to make love," and then she says later, "I always want to fuck you," but here's the thing: when we do you're at work. Like you're working. It's not, it's not this kind of thing back and forth. It's not a mutual sort of, you know, trapes of pleasure. It's just, you're at work and you have a job to do. (laughs) She's like, like, fuck that, (laughs) man. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Lauren Hutton
1: wasn't supposed to be now, I the, think it was the Jessica Lange, right? It was she was she came in and came out, and then um, and eventually think, when she got signed, when it, when she was able to come back, it wasn't it wasn't a, like she, Lauren had they'd already started, I believe. And because I think wasn't
0: um, Meryl Streep at one point, some or yeah, that would like that attached, been but but she was like, I don't like how this is portrayed. So, oh, and Julie Christie was originally. I, I think cast. Would have done really Julie well. Christie would have done well. And I'm thinking of um, "Don't Look Back." Right? Was that what it was called? "Don't Look Now." "Don't Look Now." Yeah, Sorry, with Donaldson. With yeah, yeah, the Nicholas Roads. Um, and then so, and Travolta was supposed to be.
1: So yeah, let's talk Travolta yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because I don't think he works at all in this movie. Interesting. Okay. I I I i, I look. I understand why you picked Travolta because at at this particular I point, I didn't. Time, I would never. <laughs> At this particular <laughs> point in time, he's at the height of his career. He's at the height of his career. I mean, right. yes, he's on a really gonna be on a really bad run quickly. He's sure. gonna be staying alive, he's doing perfect. He's he doing until the experts was that stupid movie that I was trying to tell you about oh. a few podcasts.
0: Oh yeah, ago. right, right, right.
1: Uh with Ari Gross, right. whether the But
0: this is but he's already done Welcome Back Cotter, so he's I mean in my mind he's well, like, right. To. So he's
1: yeah, he's at the pinnacle of his career. So yes. It doesn't get better. And so Travolta wanted Final Cut and right. Schrader was like no but they were willing to pay him two mil so and they end up paying gear 35,000 plus some back end profit points so this would have saved them a ton of money not doing Travolta But, but the thing is the reason I think one gear works better in this role is that I believe him like to me Travolta's too angular. He's too, like, his handsomeness is almost in his... It works against him almost, it, right? Yeah, and it's almost, it's not, it's not the same, I don't know. Gear is a softer, prettier man than Travolta is. Travolta's tall and kind of gangly, especially in this time in his career. Yeah. And he's also just kind of brash and cocksure and, like, where Gear plays these roles where, yes, he he can play menacing, but he's a softer, more feminine male that I think really works. And, and I, I believe him in this role way more than I would, you know, And, and him ingratiating himself with with older rich women than, than someone like Travolta, who would stand out, who would be a presence, who would be like, gear blends, even though he's beautiful. Gear blends in better with this society because also you, you can push him off as a, as a plaything and as a you know as an ornamental plant yeah. um, where you can't do that with Travolta also no no way whatsoever the nudity happens with and I think the nudity, is an important piece of this movie. I think it's. A, I mean, I think it's an important piece of of, of where filmmaking was at that particular point in time, and that Gear was very brave to do it. And I don't think it happens with with Travolta. I don't think Travolta has that.
0: And know. I don't think that was in the script no, either. I, don't I don't think so either. that was all Gear. But I do think that it says exactly what it's supposed to say about his character, Julian K. That's what he would do. He yes. has no. There is no sort of shame. There is no kind of I'm not. I, well, it's, it's just this it's like, this right? is what it is it's like, i
1: this is who I, yeah you be naked too like I, there's no judgment on bodies correct. like i'm i'm here to please you so if you like like he makes his body you know athletic and and but not boots. but not overly <laughs> the athletic equipment that really just didn't make it past the 80s but uh, and i don't know why <laughs> Why aren't we all just doing gravity boots? Like gravity sort of-
0: boots and shoulder shoulder turns. That's that's it, right? right.
1: Yes. <laughs> it's just- <laughs> okay. yeah, I do I never see the guy do a push up. I just I mean <laughs> But I mean like he is there his entire being is to compliment his his clients. Well and it's a tool. Yes, I mean that's yeah. how he looks at it, right? It's just a literal tool. Right, it's, it's a thing that gets the job done.
0: Do you know that Big Daddy Kane song? I get the job done. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah okay, course. all right, because yeah. because he works, right? right. Sorry, <laughs> anytime we can we can drop in. Big Daddy Kane. Um, <laughs> but I also back to like the Travolta thing. I think you're right. I think he's too arrogant, too cocksure. Gear has something else in his eyes, and it can be soft, but it can also be this kind of cunning, conniving. Like you always think. So gear in any role that he's in, but especially as Julian Kay, I see him like walking into a room and knowing exactly right who he can con, who he can get a drink from, who wants to go home with him and where all the exits are. <laughs> I right. mean, I just that's the he kind of vibe so he well. gets off, gives off and without doing
1: very much work at all. And Travolta's the vibe is, Travolta's vibe is. Everyone look at me. Right, I'm st- I'm big and stupid and I don't care about anybody else. You're gonna look at me because I know I'm good looking and I'm <laughs> gonna command the room so I don't have to do any work. Like, Gear is the guy, he's he's the guy in the background who is pulling all of the strings. He does this so well in a lot of films. He was Infernal oh. Affairs, he does it really well. He's really, I mean, Primal Fear is, is probably the, the best example, but like he, throughout his career, I mean, he can definitely play vulnerable and play funny and, and, but, well, but, an officer and a gentleman is what a couple years later. Yes, yeah, yeah a couple yeah. years after this, which I think probably Travolta turned down as well. Like, I he, think so too. He was one of those yeah. guys that was always picking up Travolta's so things that before that he this, to do. Gear had done Days of Heaven. He had done Days of Heaven and, and looking for Mr. Goodbar. Right,
0: right, and that was, have, that was have, basically it. And that right. That yeah. was it. But I think, I think this role. Works because of Mr. Goodbar? Yes. Right. I mean, yeah. definitely. I mean, you can see how that goes goes here and how he works so well in
1: in this role. I mean, obviously they're different, but yeah. Also, another person who turned this down was Christopher Reeve, who I think That's actually he right. would have been, been brilliant in yeah. this movie. And I yeah. and and Reeve's career and what he chose and what he didn't choose, uh, like he had a, he was up for a t- I mean, this is obviously before the accident, but he was up for like Lethal Weapon and lot, I mean like a lot of different things that like he could have done, um, that he just. didn't... Just turned down, Um, but I just recently watched him. I just streamed Death Trap recently uh, for the Real House Foundation at Home Film Fest, and he's so good in that. He's so like you know, he just he's he takes on so many different personas in that in that movie, and he's just so like. For me, he has the same kind of quality that Gear has, but. Splits the difference between Travolta and gear where Reeve was this burly masculine beautiful man But could also kind of obviously with this Clark Kent persona could underplay it a little bit I think the role would have been completely different I still don't think the nudity would have been there, but I think Reeves would have been really good in this yeah. role. Yeah. To me, this is like the quintessential, like when you think of movies in the eighties and you're not thinking of John Hughes and teenage comedies, this is the movie that you think of. Like, I don't know of any other movie. The poster was iconic. And I, and, and to the, uh, you know, one of the things that this movie captures at the cusp, you know, at the very beginning of 1980 is that eighties aesthetic. So very well, I, mean, I couldn't think of another movie who done, did this, this well, where you got this kind of, Dark neon like you said the neo noir, but like the neon and the and the, the and Beverly the Hills aspect of it. Yeah, the Debbie Harry, the different versions of the Debbie Harry song Call Me and like the music musical version. Blondie is a band. <laughs> yeah, just, Whatever. Man. Speaking of t-shirts. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, thank you. Blondie's a um, band. <laughs> that was really well done that the arm all of the the Armani the sort the, of catapulting the, the Armani, Armani the into young, the, the so the, the this is a question life.
0: like how much did Schrader like almost invent this right right. right. I mean like, like predates like, Miami
1: Vice like, this predates like man stuff I mean like it's just like, like, like he put this into he almost like helped create the culture right with something like this because at this point, it's and it, it, even looking back on it, it doesn't. You you see it, but it doesn't. It hasn't become a parody of itself right. yet. You, you see the puffy shoulders, you see the, the the slim suits, but it's not. It's not this garish, white suited, you know, bright right. T-shirt underneath, no socks, shoes kind of thing. He's still a classy. You know, he still dresses classy. He still has. He understands fashion, but. Really, I can't think of any other film that does this this well. And maybe it's no. because the aesthetic is not But it holds defined. up so well. But yeah, That's the thing. Yeah. So even like, cause, I mean, I rewatched, I mean, just rewatched it like
0: last weekend. And I'm like, this holds up. Like, I don't feel, I'm not laughing at any of no, this fashion. No. I'm not laughing at anything that they're doing or talking about or how they're doing it. Because it, it just seems so, I think, I think one reason that is, is because he creates this, world so well right that this really is of a place and of a a time i'm very much like blue collar but so nothing feels anachronistic yeah yeah even as you're watching it you know how many 40 years or whatever later
1: yeah i mean and you can't really point to any of it you can point and say that this was made in the 80s sure you can't point and say that again the hairstyles and and it, it just wasn't I don't know, like. You but how many
0: you. references do films make, and, and like they just don't work now. Like four years, right, That right. doesn't happen here. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the thing. Right, but right, but we know Blondie because it's a band, <laughs> and, <laughs> and we know Armani. Right. And, and, and that Mercedes is, is iconic as well. so I think like those kind of key points, right. And, and, right. and yeah. this, in this world, I mean, sex is still prevalent, a prevalent theme in everything. So I think,
1: yeah, he does touch a little bit, you know, when, when gear goes to the gay club, you know, there's a little bit of that. And again, even that, which we saw with the kind of the bondage and, and the leather, which would be referenced in things, things like police Academy and, and you yeah. know, for laughs and, yeah. and, uh, Diamond Street two and those types of, of movies, But again, here they are, you know, again, it's played pretty straight. It's played as non-unassuming. This is just the place that that Gear had to go to to find some information. This
0: is another part of that world. Right. And it belongs in this world. And so it doesn't seem out of place or weird.
1: What I find intriguing is. It, the murder, like it takes a minute for this movie to, like you have to kind of work to figure out what happened, right? Because you know that that Gear was with the cuckolded husband, right. and he, you know that he had sex with his wife, and it, and the husband was like telling him to slap her around and do. Th- but when you get back to like, it, it takes a minute to figure out. Oh, there was another session where she was hand because Gear handcuffed her, and like and so like. It does, it does play a, an interesting, like where we're just trying to figure out, okay, what the fuck right, is going right. on? And like, why are they thinking, it, yeah. like what happened? Cause like we saw that and it was innocuous and like, how did she end up right. dying? And
0: But this is like the other thing that I think, I mean, as as a callback to brasson we don't see the act, right? right. we never see the murder, Right. we just, we don't see, all we see is a headline, in fact, in a newspaper. <laughs> right. And, and he's like
1: looking over it and he's like eating lunch
0: or, yeah. or, you know, whatever. And then and it we just get sort of to, like the repercussions. But I think that's also a saying it doesn't matter. Right. And and, and and even the cops and everyone else like doesn't matter who did it or if you did it or what happened what matters is is that we're going to sort of put you away for it (laughs) I mean right and and, and so I think it's like yeah but so it's like we do kind of have to I think it's like we're almost like waiting for this okay is if we haven't seen this film before we're thinking is this just a movie about this guy like laying out his clothes and sleeping with women is that all we're doing here and then that kind of crime aspect comes in but again like that's not even the point is it
1: yeah, and and I mean, if if he had have ended this with Lauren Hutton not saving him, not giving him the alibi, and not kind of mm-hmm. like providing him an out here, I think that would have been just as a delicious out you know outcome. Yeah, if 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 Kay ends up in jail for this and goes down for this, and they tack on Duke's murder as well or Duke's death as well, that's a delicious ending to this movie. <laughs> now it's definitely a downer. Do I think it's you know the iconic I love the '80s American jiggle that we all think about? <laughs> Although I. I think a lot of people think about this movie who actually haven't really seen it. Right. I think they right. misremember it or they haven't actually seen it because they just they know. assume that
0: it's something it's not. Right.
1: It's like the Scarface poster to the extent of like where it is just so omnipotent that it's just it's it's everywhere. Right. I mean, it's omnipresent word, but we don't say it. Is that it? That American Jingle is all power. It's all. It's all seeing. Uh, but yeah, I, I it doesn't like when you think about this movie. I think people. Think about it in different terms. You think about the sexiness of it, but again, that sexiness is not really there. You think about the thriller aspect of it, which the thriller aspect is not really there. I think, like you said with Prasant, you put all this shit, you bring all this shit to the table, and you think about it. Like if you see pickpocket you're describing it to someone you're going to describe it as probably a pretty exciting fucking movie yes, yes. when in reality and, and it is in its own way but it is not in the same way that you normally would think of exciting like i you know i would highly recommend anyone listening to this to go watch pickpocket, pickpocket. it is brilliant but you're going to walk away from it going especially the first time you see it like what the fuck did i just watch <laughs> and that's what was intended i think yeah. that's and I, I think for a money maker and for a big Blockbuster type movie that this what I mean, this wasn't a huge it was a hit It was it a, wasn't hit. a huge hit. I mean yeah. this came out what 80 so it would have been like yeah. the it was played the top 25 movies of the year It you know, it comes under some Cheech and Chong film and then like, you know, right. but
0: but it's but it's but got it it, it it grew legs, but it, yeah, it, it
1: definitely has legs for mm-hmm. sure It is mm-hmm. it is definitely in the zeitgeist as far as things you remember from the 80s.
0: Oh, yeah, and I I, I I think back to sort of like the, the idea of how people, you know, misremember or, or kind of put upon like an actual plot. I mean, this is a vibes movie. It really yeah. is. Yeah. of it's, course. And, 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 and this again, I mean, goes back to, I know that I've said this before about Schrader, but this is him just kind of letting things go. I mean, instead of having this really neat structured plot, it's, he makes airy films. He makes these films that sort of run on, on vibes and mood, right? Which I prefer to be be honest. Right, right. um, Oh, absolutely. I mean, I like things that have a sense of poeticism and a sense of sort of lyricism, even though I hate the word lyricism. (laughs) But, but, there's no better way to sort of, I think, say it. So I really, I really like that. And that's one reason I, yeah, I mean, even on like a second rewatching, it's like, yeah, this is really kind of cool. Yeah,
1: yeah I definitely think it holds up more than those, what you would consider iconic 80s films as far as rewatchability goes. I mm-hmm. definitely would, would turn to this one more often than I would, because again, there's more to uncover. There's more to un- there's more to find out about this film than there is say, you know, something like a lethal weapon or, you know, something sort of generic right. action film right. that kind of falls into right. line with this right. in the same way. I recommend it if you likes. Yeah. And so
0: I I texted you and said that I was approaching this as like a double feature sort of idea. Okay. Right. So... So I'm gonna start with Blue Collar, and what I paired it with was Car Wash from 1976, the Michael Schultz directed film, written by Joel Schumacher. But this is a similar take, sure. You know, on these are employees of a car wash, right? It's it's a day in the life of, and we sort of follow their hopes and their dreams and their trials and tribulations trying to throughout the day. But it's it's
1: plotless. I mean, (laughs) it is.
0: It's just it just it's but it's great because it's it's funny. But it's also serious. I mean, you have serious issues at work here of class, of race, right? Of the idea of work. A lot of the same themes that are touched on with Blue Collar, but it's got much more sort of levity. I and mean, the scene with the two guys who are like, you know, practicing their dance moves yes. as they're—it's yeah. just—it's so good. And the applejack hats. I love a good applejack hat. <laughs> right? Also, Bill Duke is in this as well. Right. Um, and Richard Pryor. So um, that's that's what I would
1: pair. That's what I paired Blue Collar with was Car Wash. I was going to go with Bone, Leonard Cohen's yeah. first film with The Dakota, But since we would already talked about that, I went with Elliot Kazan's On the Waterfront. Okay. Which is a similar kind of themed film about... Um, if you haven't seen it, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> stop the fucking podcast and put on On the Waterfront. <laughs> that is one of the American classics. Brando is... is I,
2: I, it's one Pete of those Brando. things... Yeah,
1: it's Peak Brando, but it's also it's hard when as from a cinephile perspective when you show people movies that are like seminal right mm-hmm. it's hard to explain why they are seminal when you see everything that's come beyond it right you if you've watched every 90s and 2000 movie like you're going to pick up on things like oh well that's you know that's some what Brando was doing and the way that he was acting and th- the way that he was delivering dialogue just hadn't been fucking done. This man was a genius. And it so anyway, the movie is about. Uh, Brando's character he is a of a, a former boxer who's tied up in this dock workers union who is there just basically their big heavy he's and, a it's, and it's essentially he's he finds out that he's being fucked from both sides as well he starts to fall in love with um, a a Sister of a person who he led the union to who they threw off of a roof He starts to fall in love with her and as he starts to fall in love with her Basically all sides of his life fall apart. He's he starts to run afoul of his um, His his the his mafia friends He starts to run afoul of, of, of the of the girl and his and his work life and he realizes that You know, he's just been a big dumb Mutt his entire life, and that he doesn't know he is not smart enough to get out of it. And the people that he loved and tried to take care of him uh, weren't there, and when they they had his back. And that's the, you know it's the whole I could have been a contender, yep. I could have been somebody. And I, I know that's been parodied over and over again. But when you watch it at its source. In this beautiful black and white film, it is just so well done. Similar theme themes, but yeah. I mean again, it's kind of a cheat for me to pull so, like on the waterfront out, but like but that's yeah, well, that was what I thought about. That's how this works. I mean that's that that's the idea of
0: this, is that like these films make us think of this other film and who the fuck cares why? I mean, like we can get there and that's all that matters as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so for hardcore, I this is an obvious one. And I just picked 8mm. Okay. Right. All right. Um, the Joel Schumacher director, starring Nick Cage, Joaquin Phoenix, where Nick Cage is a private eye uh, who's been hired to investigate a snuff film. But the way that it sort of delves into the seedier part of porn, the way that I think that there are similar themes and even similar sort of like acting traits from Cage and George C. Scott in this film, how he's covering his face and not wanting to look and how he is a kind of a fish out of water. Right. Joaquin Phoenix might as well be Nicky Sort right. of like sure. following him right. or leading him around this world. So um, yeah, that's what
1: I that's what I did. I chose 1970s Joe, starring Peter Boyle. Okay, which is not necessarily. The It's kind of a similar in outrage film. So Joe is, Peter Boyle plays this kind of conservative um, blue-collar worker who is drinking in this bar one night when he comes across this kind of a richer, um, also a conservative guy. And they start talking about how much they hate the hippies, And he confesses to him that he had killed his uh, daughter, you know, not, not, uh, who was played by Susan Saran, and he killed her drug dealer boyfriend. And then it becomes this really terrible uh, joining of two bigoted minds who just kind of feed upon one another and go on kind of a killing spree on, on when they're trying to find Susan Sarandon as she's run away when she finds out her father has has killed her boyfriend. And so it's just this really, uh, very extreme right-wing violent movie where Joe and this other kind of exec, you know, kind of a white collar guy, fall in line and start, you know, it's very, a lot of racial slurs being thrown around. It's very hard to watch. Um, and it's really kind of, it would be, it's an intriguing film that probably should be brought up more today as a as a white privilege kind of, you know, example. Um, it, but speaking back to Peter Boyle's acting career, he was so appalled by the violence in this movie and how it was, people actually championed it and like were excited about it that he kind of swore off violent films for a good long while. He turned down the French connection. He was gonna be Gene Hackman's role in in the French connection he turned that down um, because he just couldn't stomach knowing that one of his roles was encouraging these types of people to commit acts of of violence against people. It is a harrowing watch. I watched it way too young, Um, (laughs) but it is a, but I think it's an important film. And I I would, it's, it's it's an interesting kind of uh, contrast to hardcore and another, like where it's just this, this, these people, who are who feel like they're better than others and above these other things that happen. And you know, there's a lot of like class classism in this and a lot of like misunderstanding of welfare in, 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 in a lot of what you see still to this day. But Right. Um, I was gonna say yeah. It, it it's yeah. So Joe. Yeah. Keep America beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> keep America
0: beautiful. Um, I, I just want to give a shout out to the Friends of Eddie Coyle. Yes. I I I love that movie. Um Peter Boyle is also in that. Okay so American Gigolo since you talked about Travolta I picked Blowout okay right Um, that was 81 De Palma Brian De Palma this is Travolta as a sound editor who's out one night getting field recordings and basically records evidence that an accident was actually a murder and then John Lithgow brings all hell, <laughs> <laughs> Nancy Allen's in it as well. Um, but um, I, we know one of those films that is is a paranoia film, that was, that was. what year was Parallax for you? But, 79. Right, but a, I around this time, yeah. right? I mean, early 80s, late 70s, yeah. everything was about some kind of like paranoia or about Vietnam. <laughs> or, yeah, it was or cold about war. the it was, Yeah, it was cold it was war, cold war out, paranoia. Yeah. It was coming out of Vietnam. It was sort of
1: you know you exploitation of, you, you, and paranoia in the U.S. And, right, and you've got all of the Nixon scandal happening as well. So right, I mean, it, right. it, it's just all very, and, it, and and we're leading into this idea of total destruction of of nuclear. Right,
0: <laughs> but I find blowout to have a similar kind of sexiness to it as well, well is most the Palma, it's most right? of the Palma yeah, it's, it's, is going to have anyway right Right, that kind of like sexual it's lurid
1: hitchcock right? right yeah yeah and so i think that pairs well with with american gigolo uh um, mine is gus van sant's my own private idaho nice so just taking the kind of the gigolo portion of it and then pushing it out into what would become i don't necessarily know if my own private idaho is a seminal film for or a, a you know an iconic film for the 90s in, in the sense, in the same way that it, it defines the aesthetic, but it certainly defined like American independent cinema for a minute, anyway. And it, it, it hit upon, you know, it's starring Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix, and River Phoenix is uh, this narcoleptic gigolo who's traipsing around you know, the United States, trying to, try, trying to live from um, you know, one moment to the next, and it's next paycheck to the next, and Keanu Reeves is his partner, and they go around, and they have all these adventures. It's a wonderful film if you haven't seen it. Um, it is a tragedy that River Phoenix has passed and, and didn't get to fulfill whatever f- promises that he wanted to make in his life, but uh, it really is just a, a wonderful, and it's, it's like one of those movies, that if you consider yourself a cinephile or a film lover, this movie is one you need to see.
0: Yeah. And uh, I hope you all have the B-52 stuck in your head as well. <laughs> so I did one for Pickpocket, too. Did you oh, do Oh, no, Pickpocket? I did not do for so Pickpocket. So I but did... We'll just let that be. <laughs> I did I did Christopher Nolan's Following.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, right. And, and, I saw and, that in the Inwood at one point, like I did a midnight screening. It was oh, so much I, fun. I did not. It, I, not I like, found It wasn't when it originally came out. This was oh, after Memento. Okay. Like, okay. So they were doing a repertory screening of it at some point. Oh, because yeah.
0: I... Uh, it, I saw Memento first in the theaters I, I went and saw it twice and I took a friend of mine and she was like do you always see movies like this and I'm like yeah I'm like yeah I do and she's like I don't think I'm going to go again but so after, after after yeah, after seeing Memento I'm like who is this guy like what's the story here and then I found following and um, but it's a story about a, a writer looking for material so he follows people and becomes kind of like a serial burglar until a real burglar kind of takes him under his wing and then
1: and, and in kind of the Nolan style it is all about the editing it takes it basically takes the the beginning the middle and the end chops it up into different sections and you bounce back between all three of them there's actually a you know weirdly enough and I don't know why you would actually do this but there's like linear cuts of following and memento and I'm like uh, you're missing the point like why would you do that That (laughs) That, it ruins everything Right.
0: right there was there was a video of him describing how Memento worked as like a hairpin shaped narrative. Yeah, and it was wild. I was just like,
1: "What?" I was blown away. The first time I saw Memento in the theater, I was just like, "Holy fuck! This is it. This is so fucking." Yeah. Good. No, I went like the next. day, I went again. No, the next I day. Drove, so, I was, so it was showing at the Doby Theater in Austin, which is like a, a you know if you don't know what was like a, it was like a it was it was it was an art house theater in a dorm room. Yeah, it was like there was okay. a mall underneath a dorm, you know, in, in, U- in UT. Um, and it showed like reservoir dogs. And it showed, I mean, like, and so like it played a memento. I was he- living here and then I drove back down like a, a weekend later to go yeah. see it again. And I was just like, because it wasn't showing in Dallas yet. And I was just like, I'm going to take some friends. and We're going to go. Yeah. <laughs> like it was so, so good.
0: I saw it at a place called Castleton Arts in Indianapolis, on the north side of Indianapolis. They showed like the more mainstream, like art house films. And so, like this and Amelie, but they would have like a yearly kind of Hitchcock mini marathon and right. stuff too.
1: So, right. um, but yeah, I saw it there. And then, yeah, the next day. Before we leave, bouncing back, to, and we, I know I mentioned it and I completely forgot the the t shirt game in hardcore is pretty on point as well. Nikki wears a Roarer 713, which is a load shirt, <laughs> which I've, I've actually found one that I want to buy. Oh, nice. And then she has this shirt that has Sniff on it where the eye is dotted with a musical note and I can't find that one anywhere. I've seen the oh, picture wow. of it, but it's just, it's her and it just says sniff in like this really kind of like fun font. And with the musical note as the dotting of the eye and I can't find any more information about that. But the roar, the, the Quaalude shirt actually shows up in, um, in a, a Cheech and Chong movie as well. Okay. But yeah, it's like the original pill for the Quaalude. It's just, it's a cool looking shirt. So uh, I, I, I that's the, awesome. the, the Schrader aesthetic for sure is brilliant. Okay. So. I
0: I have, I have a Mazzy star t-shirt. Yeah. That is like a recreation of a shirt that Hope Sandoval wore on a small British music TV show where she played Halal <laughs> and bells ring, right? and so I've got it. Nice. Yeah, it's like just like this heart American American flag like heart shirt. And so it doesn't say anything else on it. It's just so like it, oh, okay. no, yeah, no. You no. have to know it. So you Nazi have star. to know that she wore it on this show. <laughs> and so I wear it out. Nobody fucking gets it because <laughs> right. Know. But who cares? That's not the but, point. But I know. I'm going to buy that Big Mac shirt. And, and if, if aware, I ever right. see Hope Sandoval,
1: she'll know. <laughs> <Right. She's> like, <laughs> <laughs> she'll just look at me like, yes, I understand. All right. So next next week we're going to be or the next episode we're going to be talking late Paul Schrader. Is that right? That's so right.
0: What do we choose? We chose first first reformed card counter. And then I think we well, should do a reduction Okay. Yeah, because, good. okay. good. Because yeah, yeah, Master no, Gardener won't be out yet, right, but I right. think I think Affliction will sort of I, I think prove a nice kind of antidote to those two films because it is a little bit different and it's one that he didn't write. Right. And so I think that good that'd be cool. Okay. So yeah, Affliction. So yeah, if you want uh, if you First want Reformed? to watch, if you want to play
1: along at home, I think Card Counters on HBO Max. I'm not sure where First Reformed is and Affliction. Who the hell knows? You may have to rent that one from yeah. Amazon Prime. Yeah. You know what? If you go to and not to not to pump up a website or anything, but if you go to IMDb, it does a pretty good job of showing you of where. Showing you where, sure. where it is, so um, I've been using that one uh, as, as, as a as a placeholder for where is it streaming? Um, yeah, and if you happen to be in the Dallas Fort Worth area on uh, November 30th after Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to be showing the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple. We'll be talking about it on the podcast as well, but we would love to see you out on November 30th. Um, and you're going to be doing what upcoming on the Real House Virtual? And so I'm so I'm going to be doing. Um, we're going to be leaning into murder mystery movies this month uh, for ryan johnson's glass onion and on the 17th i am going to be hosting the last of sheila or sheelia um I, don't know, well, I, I, I can never say that right. The Last of Sheila, And uh, it's a really fun kind of one of the, it's like always on these like underseen murder mystery movies um, from the seventies. So yeah, if you want to go find out more about it uh, at uh, real house foundation on Facebook, there's an event out there. You can join us and we would love to have you watch it with us virtually.
0: Any, any other news? That's no. it.
1: All right. Until next time. All right, guys. All right. We'll see Thanks. You. Bye. You have been listening to why does the Wilhelm scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you liked today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting Screen.com. If you are in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time.